Oh boy, and we're live. We are not a drama channel, no matter what. Um, <laughs> oh, we are not a drama channel. Okay, so this is the Digital Archipelago. Finally, episode 47? 47, I think, yeah. Yeah. 47. Yes, because it's 47, because it's 48 on the playlist, because I added the Conscious Caracol stream to the Digital Archipelago playlist. Because no. that was basically just Digital Archipelago with... Bonus on, episode. On yeah, bonus episode. Uh, we didn't get to cover... Well, I mean, next week we'll probably cover Kaczynski and... Uh... Although, oh, I don't God, know, I... everyone and their mother has covered Kaczynski. Like, my yeah, notifications... People are, hard... people are getting hit on YouTube by covering it. So I maybe not. We might have to do a paywalled version of that. But we have other things to cover next week. But this week, I mean, I don't want to say like thankfully another he's literally me historical figure has died, but I'm not gonna say that. But anyways, um You're not gonna say that about the the late Daniel Ellsberg, leaker of the Pentagon papers, who died at the age of ninety something today. Well, that was that was Kissinger's final revenge to live past his <laughs> to live past his death. Kiss, Kissinger's uh, tweeting press S to spit on his alt account right now. <laughs> Clemens von Metternich Groiper is saying press S to spit for Daniel yeah. Ellsberg's death. Well, you know yeah, that's my that's my my Steam account is like it's literally Metternich. It's like my it's like and I had to pay Henry Kissinger for the handle. Oh my God. That's amazing. Does Twitter does what is uh, Henry Kissinger play on Steam? He plays like Hoi Four, right? Oh, he's he's got the the new uh, the the TNO mod for um, Hearts of Iron Four, or <laughs> you know, the Reich One. <laughs> yeah, I remember no, he he actually did Henry Kissinger is actually the guy who did the mod, that mod everyone plays where you play the Second Civil War. Tim. Whoa. Yeah, he was he was a consulting historian on that fact. He's also he's also worked very closely with Sid Meier on the Civilization games. He he oh. understands. Everyone thinks that you know if you've ever played Civilization, you know of the famous glitch where Mahatma Gandhi, the the alleged peace lover, not you know pedo weird guy. Um, you know everyone finds it. Oh, it's a glitch that you know he's so new cappy. No, 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 no. Kissinger was the consulting advisor. He told Sid Meier and the guys over there and Microprose and Firaxis that no, actually, the Indians are trigger-happy with their nuclear weapons. If it wasn't for his secret interventions in the 1990s, India and Pakistan would have turned each other to glass. So he's, he's a very important consultant on the uh, 4X grand strategy video game genre. And that's the only reason why they're keeping him alive, is to, to pump out more video games, not to keep the world order he built alive. <laughs> Didn't Norman Finkelstein write a book about Gandhi saying, like, near the end of his life in those pamphlets, Gandhi, like, renounced nonviolence? Uh, I don't know, actually, but I would... I think so. My gut instinct wants me to say that that's true. <laughs> you know, you know, actually, you know what's funny is that I was interviewed by an editor of Norman Finkelstein, and he's like, Gio, I could hook you up if you want to do a content minor with him, because he wrote a recent book about the Wokesters or whatever, and can you imagine content mining with Norman Finkelstein? That would be that'd be amazing. I mean, of course, I, w I would have to paywall um, discussion of his famous book. You know, the one. Anyways, we brought on Christopher Sambach because I was told by people that you are the foremost expert on uh, all things Cormac McCarthy. Uh, Cormac McCarthy recently passed away at the age of, I want to say, 86. 
or 87? And please see those super chats. 89. 89. See, that's what, like, yeah, world's foremost expert qualifies me to tell you how old he was. I'm not the world's, I am not the world's foremost expert. And the reason I'm going to deny the, deny myself the title here is because he, uh, I don't know, I don't know if either of y'all follow him, but uh, he goes on the Art of Dark podcast uh, pretty frequently. Um, Aaron Gwynn is, I, personally, I think oh, yeah. the, he's the, the foremost expert of his generation, at least. And I think he's a little bit older than me. I think he's like 10 years older than me, so safely. I can, I, I can rest easily knowing that my time is coming um, by, you know, like get, giving, giving him the title for now. He's also probably the world, probably, I think, the foremost expert in Southern literature. And he's a specifically a Cormac McCarthy nut. Has like oh, yeah. Corm- Blood Mer- he's got an entire substack themed around just reading Blood Meridian. So I just want to, pl- I want to plug him instantly. He's also a great Twitter account to follow. Um, I think I yeah, follow him. Yeah. I am a, I'm not the world's foremost expert on Cormac McCarthy, but I may be but maybe the world's most similar. I may be of all the he's just like me bros, I may be the most he's just like me bro of the yeah. Cormac McCarthy bros. And, um, well, I mean, both of you are Southerners. Cormac McCarthy's a Southerner, right? So. Well, I mean, that's okay, now that's an interesting question here. Uh, first, mm. he's from an Irish Catholic family. Uh, right, he's from an Irish Catholic. Born in Rhode Island to an Irish Catholic family. So, I mean, there are some things about him that are really fascinating because he certainly writes a lot of what you would term Southern fiction. Okay. Right. Um, and especially even Blood, Blood Meridian is even you know, has like strong, you know, Southern fiction specifically overtones and. I would say Cormac McCarthy is a Southerner. That's, for instance, why Santa Fe and not San Francisco. Because, like, there are some things about McCarthy's life that, you know, and he's so postmodern, so self-stylized that you have to kind of know that he knows that this is what he's doing. But he kind of navigates, you know, he, he's born in Rhode Island in 1932. Now, I'm going to say his family is not wealthy or anything. But they're not poor. Okay, his father's a lawyer, but it's the beginning of the Great Depression, you know, and they're not, he's not in Rhode Island very long because his father gets a job uh, as a, an attorney working for the Tennessee Valley Authority. Of course, it's one of the, you know, it's one of the, one of the big New Deal programs. And so family moves down to Knoxville, Tennessee, or yeah, to you know, Knoxville area. And that's where, that's really where he grew up. But there are some things about Cormac McCarthy that are sort of irrevocably Yankee, okay. Even there's consider considerably more things about Corn McCarthy that are more Yankee than they are either Southern or Western. Um, and, and for you those know, like Americans, and, for for people outside of America who don't know the difference, what is the difference between Ameri- like Yankee? Like it's not just it doesn't just mean like Northern America. It just means that like like Northern states. I mean, it, Yankee has a different connotation. Yeah, I don't yeah. even really mean Midwest. Whenever I'm talking, like like we're talking about like. Uh, that account logo Daedalus, you know, bring him up, do shadow crosses the sun or whatever. But Lo- mm-hmm. logo will refer to will refer to himself sometimes as a swamp Yankee, um, and that's really the the milieu that that, that McCarthy's family sort of comes from, which is like mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yankees very specifically come from the area that you would call like New England, um, really only a couple of counties deep in New, New England too, Maine. and then you know. If you imagine like Boston as a city state and it's like northernmost outpost is like Kennebunkport in Maine. 
Oh, yeah. That's like that's pretty much the range of Yankees. You know, that's and then of course the South is, you know, the South could be God, South could be dozens of different things depending on who you ask. But yeah. Um, but I think the, the the thing that like makes him so universal because again, Corn McCarthy's definitely some Southern writer. Uh, but he's been able to do some big Southern fiction in really in the last 20 years or so, in the last 50 years or so, has kind of sunk into what you would term genre fiction. Yeah, um, like Southern I, Gothic is I, definitely, yeah. Right, exactly. So, like, you know, like, you, it, it, when I say this, you can imagine, like, the names, the titles in your head. Where are the crawdads saying? Beast of the Southern Wild, you know, so on and so forth. That sort of thing. It's got a very, like, you know, sort of self-referential, stylized, you know, fashion. And Cormac McCarthy, he kind of, he's a little more, he's, he's able to universalize what he's writing a little bit more. And I actually don't think, I really shouldn't say universalize, I should say universalize within America. Um, yes. The themes, that, the themes that he deals with, because, you know, I, was talking, I have you know, a friend, he, he, uh, our buddy Kira, he's in your chat, he, he floats around. Uh, I was talking with him the other day about this. It's like, you know, he's like, and, you know, he talks like, talks like a like, rich, arrogant slob. And so he's, he's like, he's like, he's like, I don't understand this thing. He's like, I read Blood Meridian. I don't understand this thing with Cormac McCarthy. I just don't get it. You know, it's like, well, you know, it's, he's very ubiquitous in, uh, in the United States. Um, and one of the reasons I think this is true is because he's able to unify a lot of the themes that we sort of think of when we think of New England fiction as, uh, you know, the, or the New England literary tradition. And he sort of, sneakily blends it in to what is otherwise self-consciously Faulkner mimetics, you know? Right. Um, and, and that I think is, that's the secret sauce that like really managed to make him. And of course he got the, he got his shot in the press and everything he got, but that was why he stuck instead of just, you know, ended up being famed for 15 minutes whenever he wrote one book, because like he really did, he tapped into something that, you know, was really universally American. He was able to speak, you know, volumes to almost every American man, certainly, mm -hmm. and without a doubt, every white American man. Like if you are like if you were a white American man and you read Blood Meridian and you weren't moved by it, oh, what the hell is wrong with you? You know. Um, but well, yeah, that was a lot of talking around. You know, well, I wanted to talk shy. about the culture war issues around Sam um, around a. McCarthy just a little bit because I want to get into Blood Meridian in the road but I, I do like one thing particular that when we discuss Blood Meridian would be the frontier thesis is everywhere I mean that's the quintessential American but but it's spiritualized in Cormac McCarthy which which most I, I guess I mean I'm no expert obviously but I think a lot of like southern gothic uh, fiction there is a metaphysical element to that quintessential American frontiersman um, ideal or monotype or uh, let's let's call it a conotype, right? I mean, unfortunately, I, I think it's very unfortunate that Spangler didn't uh, write a lot about America. I think if he went to America, if he lived long enough, he probably could have uh, detected, you know, I mean, well, I mean, well, Spurger Ackley came on the podcast recently on Content Mind and all release episodes. But before that, uh, Prude, uh, what do you have to, should we get the, the shilling out of the way? You were on Warren McIntyre today. I watched uh, most of it uh, about this art article you were breaking down from some like uh, 
you're revealing leftoid uh who is it by oh some last name moskowitz or whatever and he'll pop back in in a second folks yeah uh but he was a therapist uh which i just thought was just totally fitting that some psychologizing maniac wants to kill all the the guys that live in the suburbs and stuff like that yeah. so but I, I mean to 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 point off on your your aspect of frontierism i mean like there's southern gothic what i mean well, you're again, a texaner so you know this intimately well to an extent but i mean like, like you have to understand like cormac mccarthy gets a start in 1965 where yeah. he writes the orchard keeper uh and of course well, he was it, pissed broke right uh yeah well yes and that's the story well we can get into that um <laughs> that's definitely an interesting story because the man had an interesting relationship with the fairer sex to say the least but yeah so he writes this like um this this novel which he quote unquote submits blindly uh to who would be his editor for like the next like 40 years oh, uh, and um comes out in 1965 the year after he wins the 1966 william faulkner award for first uh notable novel i think was the award. um but i mean his style if you read this book which is interwar period tiny isolated community in tennessee he's literally writing from home you know he, he's yeah. writing about home he's writing about his life and this time of his upbringing um and of course about bootleggers uh, which of course so I've, I've read bits and pieces of it I, my my reading of cormac mccarthy is blood meridian the road all the pretty horses and i'm currently reading um the passenger so well, even like faulkner that the, that theme is like replete with that kind of content especially like in as i lay dying that i listen i i <laughs> i'm not gonna say i only know about the book because of the band as i lay dying i never was i was never into as i lay are you a fan of christian uh metalcore back in the 2000s prude or uh no um you know about I, tim labesis prude no i can safely say i don't and i'm, okay, I'm you afraid don't if i know. open it's... that can of worms i'm not ready um but i mean yeah. <laughs> go ahead go ahead yeah so i mean like the the aspect of like frontierism is present not just in like the southern gothic stuff that was far more self-referential yeah. it's far more personable like if you are from there, you're going to relate to it. And even if you aren't from there, you're going to relate to it. I mean, um, well, that's what I mean. Like when you, like a lot of Southern Gothic writers, you would almost consider them folk literature, folk art in a way. And they were brought to the mainstream later. I don't know if that's true or not nowadays. I mean, there's that debate around like folk literature and folk art, whether it's like genuine or yeah. Anyways. Well, I mean, it's a little different than, I mean, the other thing, too, is, is like, wh what remnants of this tradition is alive? I mean, um, yeah. McCarthy, of course, is heavily influenced by William Faulkner. Um, Faulkner, of course, is seeing a, a generational style happen. I mean, especially when his early writing begins in, like, the 1920s. I think he's in New Orleans at the time. He's living in the French Quarter. Uh, he's um, similar in his writings with respects to, like, Hemingway and Fitzgerald. So you're sort of seeing this, like, turn-of-the-century style from a uniquely Southern perspective sort of survive, um, especially in McCarthy. But, I mean, like, it's different than, say, Westerns. And, I mean, we talked about this when we were on Conscious Caracol's channel about, the, like, the... Um, with respects to, like, the South or, like, the frontier. It's yeah. just, like, you know, the American West gets conquered and you're kind of left to wonder, well, what does that mean? Or what do we do now? Like, it's the great American adventure, which, you know, prior to 
a lot of our or a lot of our demographic changes, right? Like that was the American story. I mean, like the American ethnogenesis, you could argue, really gets started, for instance, in like King Philip's War, and we've talked about that in the old Glory Club with Sam Batch. And what comes in from there is, you know, the frontier is a continuation of that. You kind of see the veracity and ferociousness and the sheer blood and guts of it all in, in Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. But he's also sort of, I don't want to say like he's he's deconstructing it, but he is posing these beautiful character portraits of what it meant to be these these men out here. And I mean, for instance, you know, people, everyone sort of references Judge Holden, but I mean, like you talk about the aspect, oh, he speaks Dutch and the everything with respects to like this sort of bizarre interpretation of Christianity and mixed Dutch reform, uh, portraiture, race, destruction, what are we doing? Um, and it's far different than say opening up a Louis L'Amour novel or any other sort of pulp Western classic um, because it's not so much about, because I mean, you read a Louis L'Amour character. Yeah. You've got your outlaw, you got your story, you had it going. And I grew up on a lot of those with my dad because he reads them. It's really the only books he reads, but oh, yeah. it's um, the West is just as much of a character as the characters in that story. Whereas um, what McCarthy and other Southern Gothic writers can do is even like, even with something like where the crawdads sing or whatever, like, the region is just as much of its own organic character that is shaped as the people shape the region. Uh, it, it's, it kind of reminds me of like um, Spangler's concept of the hand and the tool um, man's hands evolve with the tools and the tools evolve with the hands uh, sort of this. Well, another thing that Heidegger got from Spangler. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so you, you kind of see that sort of duality play out with um the southern writers especially with mccarthy um have you, have you ever heard just of on, on this on the spangler thing real quick i don't know has anybody has have any of the right-wing bros have they dug up the spangler references in the pat in salamaris uh, there's Ours? like there's oh, this is something really so when you talk well yeah whenever you you can i would sometimes i would be skeptical about applying you know any any sort of spanglerian language to a writer's work except in this case because he's obviously read spangler and uh really incorporated him and in, in, incorporated him in you know quite a number of ways there are a lot of you know sort of baseline assumptions that you could really see him in in a way drawing from spangler and this is one of the things that's really interesting for me about mccarthy well, anyway it's yeah towards the end of stella marriage which of course is the last book we get from him of course you, you when you're reading this book if you're you know a real mccarthy fan as you're thundering down the last stretch of this book that's really kind of this coda to this other novel that he's written which was you know the passenger there's this section where he takes, you know, uh, of the last 50 pages of this, you know, incredible writer's life. He takes like he takes a moment to meditate on Oswald Spangler directly and what he thinks and what he thinks is interesting about Oswald Spangler. OK. And, you know, and really what it t turns out, he's interested in that second chapter, uh, that second chapter that's called The Meaning of Numbers. And this, this is the one. But. You know, there are other Spanglerian themes that run all the way through Cormac McCarthy's work. I'm sure a lot of other people like really have, you know, borne down on this already. Though I'm sure people are familiar with it. But you're absolutely in the right, you know, in the right frame of mind whenever you, you know, if you talk about Spangler, you talk about Cormac McCarthy. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, but even like, uh, I don't know if he's a bit of a he's a bit of a lib or not, but. Uh, Definitely like that book. Uh, what's a book by uh, Slotkin, um, Gunfighter Nation. 
that talks about like specifically the frontier thesis. I mean, there is like a, like a lot of Spinglerian themes within the corpus of blood meridian, but also I would say a lot of that um, American, sub, like the like quintessentially American literature, like there's just something about the sort of spiritual ground of the United States that leads to very particular man versus nature, um, you know, man confronting the frontier, confronting forces outside of what is known. There's something about, there's something about America, like I've said before in this podcast, that is eternally old and eternally young at the same time. Uh, and okay, you know, like yeah. whole frontier thesis, like you're referring formally to the frontier. And good God, I cannot remember the name. Frederick Jackson Turner. Now got it. Yeah, Turner. Frederick yeah, Turner. Uh, Frederick Jackson Turner is the guy. He and he writes this. He's a historian of the same generation, actually, as my favorite American historian ever, Woodrow Wilson, and um, the and mm -hmm. a, a couple of these other guys. But also, he's writing at the same time Henry Adams is writing, when Brooks Adams. And this is actually this is the really the peak of cyclical history as like a you know cyclical history as a oh as a concept in the philosophy of history uh and the frontier thesis is absolutely you know you have to kind of squint and chop and screw it a little bit but the frontier thesis is absolutely a manifestation of cyclical historical theory you know this is like yeah, the, I, this is a theory theory of history which this this main era, you know, capital M, capital E era, main era, that is the era of the frontier, the American West. This thing on which the United States of America has always based itself. Okay, you know, this is like famous, famous things that happened in American history because of the frontier. Benjamin Franklin, you know, Benjamin Franklin makes a population prediction in the, you know, late 17th century based on how he thinks the frontier is going to be settled people laugh at him you know he's like 100 million in 100 years you know or some some number like that and people are like this, this, this he was more or less crap was he not yeah and he was like he was like within a couple of thousand okay you, you know like, like but this is you know this thing <clears throat> america has always and america has used that frontier as a crutch um oh uh, for a lot of its past it was able relatively to plaster over the sort of class divisions it's repeatedly been able to escape what it will refer to as the traps of european politics by simply you know okay so if there's if even even with the slavery question it's like okay well if you people want to have slaves in these states go settle another state west from texas you know go new mexico or you know go west from mississippi go to louisiana and if you don't want slaves you just keep going from Iowa to Colorado to California, so on. So just keep, you know, just straight line west, big huge line in the earth. You know, that's when we use that to, to really avoid a lot of the political issues that you know Europe has. Um, this is this is Nick Land's concept of exit, and right. you know, yeah, and in, in a, a very real, you know, this is your this is the crack, it's cracker factory politics. Um, and then in 1892. You know, we, we get this, this, this frontiers closed, you know, uh, and the, the assumption at the time is that this closes a main era of American history. What what is America now? Like, it, like you know, somebody's jammed the clutch in. You know, what is this next gear going to be? What is the next phase of American civilization look like? And that's, you know, that's that is all over Blood Meridian. And that's just the thing about, 
McCarthy that fascinates me the most is his take on history. And this is where he turns into an incredible Southern writer because the meaning of time, history, the weight of history, these are very Southern literary things. This is, our, this, is, this is our bread and butter along with like incestuous romance. Yeah, you know? the, the closing of the frontier, this is before the Civil War, right? I'm assuming. Uh, no, it's after the Civil War, it's 1892. Oh, okay, that makes mm, that does make sense. That does, yeah. and a lot of, a lot of, uh, maybe we'll cover. But Prude, you go ahead. The, the the land connection, that's very, man. You gotta, but then Nick Land being like British, you know, it's well. I mean, he really is a citizen of the world now. But go ahead, Prude. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Doctor Doctor Land is what he would call as the citizen of the world, to say the least. Well. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, yeah, what land the point land is he's making points about the politics of the Anglosphere, and this is we're getting maybe getting too far off into sandbagisms now, but the that's but, why we're know, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's he's essentially alleging that there are certain as that there are certain and really this is not a land thing, this is a normal. A lot of historians have done this. Reinhard yeah. Koselik does this, uh, Jurgen Habermas does it famously in uh, structural transformation in the. the structural transformation he's got this whole oh, chapter that's, yeah that's right yeah yeah go the ahead, go model ahead. case of britain there's an incredible in, in bernard potter i think is the name he's a marxist historian he's wrote this book called the absent-minded imperialist where you know he takes this he takes he's a marxist historian who takes this claim that um who's the rivers of blood guy uh how uh, enoch powell yeah, yeah, Enoch Powell. So he takes this claim that Enoch Powell once made, which was Enoch Powell once claimed the British Empire never existed. It was just goodwill in the free market. Okay. And he takes this claim seriously and he writes this history of British imperialism as this thing that's totally different from all of the other imperialisms, except it, I would argue that Russia's is remarkably similar to Britain's actually. But the whole point is being made here is that this thing the Anglosphere does. They're constantly able to plaster over ideological differences that, you know, that arrive in countries like France or Germany, right. where there's everybody's really kind of stuck together when like when when people in the Anglosphere, however, when they get when their politics get so bad that they're going to start killing each other. One of them just like, look, Australia's that way. Go there. OK. And then this is they go to Australia and, you know, like it's like the valve. It's like a safety valve you can pull. Go to Canada. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, Canada was really a punishment other... division for yeah. Like what are the yeah? What are the countries that have a frontier tradition? It's the United States, Canada, Australia, uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, all of them. You know, it's yeah. all of them, and then Russia. <laughs> but, no, it's, uh, you could see, yeah, Russia could be in there as well. That's very, it's very funny how the Anglo's have this intense hatred, especially nowadays for the Russians. But yet they have, there's some kind of, they were kind of like kissing cousins for a little bit that hated each other. But that's, you know, that's history. Anyways, that's distracting. Um, this is why I, me and you have to talk. I think a cut to my, but uh, Prude, um, Blood Meridian. Do we want to cover Blood Meridian first, or should we go to the road? We'll save the road for Yeah, hours. I mean, he's got to be the first one. First of all, his, his early books aren't good, so there's not, not – whatever. So, you know, go ahead. Um, I mean, I Blood, don't – Blood Meridian's the first one that really dings the radar in a way that, like, you know, that you really need to talk about. Yeah. yeah Philip Daniel had a good point about Vietnam and the, the, the French. But anyways, go ahead, Prude. Yeah. Well, you know, it's – 
What, what did he say about the French? I, I don't have chat open. That they um, had a, they had a frontier here. Here you go. There you go. Yeah, I mean the, they do. Um, and then that frontier tradition gets settled, and then post-colonialism kicks in, and America doesn't really do anything <laughs> about uh, French Indochina. Um, although we kind of come in later under domino theory, but that's actually a way more long, complicated story because we got in there even still when the French were involved under Eisenhower. Uh, oh, yeah. Like our America's involvement in Vietnam is way older than I think most people realize contemporarily, but that's a subject for another day. Watch, watch Apocalypse Now, the redo edition, the Redux edition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I guess the only—I mean, I want to talk about Blood Meridian and the aspect of actually the beginning, um, because you know we have the kid, which I would argue is a self-insert for obvious reasons, just because of where he's from, but. You know, we, we meet Judge Holden at a religious revival in Nacogdoches, Texas. And if you've ever lived um, in sort of Nacogdoches area, East Texas, North Texas, um, parts of sort of that like Texian Anglo West or like, you know, founders of Texas, the Republic. Um, oh, yeah. This is way more common than you think to a point that in 2023 um, on the road that I take on my way to my church, there was over the course of the last six months a revivalist tent church um led oh by this God. sort of no no i mean it's very real oh um, yeah. they still have oh, no, the yeah. tents yeah. no this is this is true. a common tradition like yeah. this is not new and it is not going away either and this and this pastor is got his little billboard he's got his little signs and he was saying things like you know um uh, a church where all lives matter and where you can come and uniquely engage and encounter Christ. Uh, you know, and I, I um, and I had gone out of pure curiosity. I was driving home from one of my services and I was like, I've never been to one of these. I kind of want to know what it's like. And so I popped in my head in the tent. I kind of, thankfully it was crowded. No one kind of noticed. Uh, and I'm just listening to this guy sort of cite scripture squirrely and explain the need for a return to a, a more fundamental Christian biblical tradition. And it's just a fiery, you know, 45 minute sermon. And they got like a little fire outside for in case it gets cold and people want to socialize or talk to the pastor and take a picture with him. Anybody's just going off and he's talking about the need to come back, the need to return like the prodigal son. And it's just like, yeah, this is no different than sort of the opening chapters of blood Meridian lest uh, Judge Holden accuses the man of um, sodomizing children and sacrificing animals. But, you know, no one killed this uh, traveling evangelical-like pastor that I sat in and listened to. It was very strange, very interesting. But yeah. you, want, you wanted to say something there, Sam Bash, just about this tradition? Because, I mean, like, yeah, it's still no, around. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, that's what I was going to point out. Because I forget that you, like, you and I live, like, really, we're, both of us live well within the world that, Cormac McCarthy's writing about like Nacogdoches, Texas. If you like, you have to you have to abandon Nacogdoches, Texas, to imagine what it's like. And you know, you the blood brain. The first we get the incredible first line: "See the child," you know. And you gotta like, if you know this world, you gotta kind of hear it like that. You know, you gotta know that there's like a there's a specific emphasis in the way people in this part of the world talk. You know, and yeah, I mean, you know, like thinking like ten cities. We're really talking like first season of True Detective is the only yeah. other like such so perfect representation. That is the closest that thing I can that imagine. you get. Yeah, but um, and it, but I mean, it's, it's it's incredible that this thing is still real. And this is one of the things that's different about Southern fiction. It's one thing that differentiates American fiction from 
uh, Southern fiction or make Southern fiction separate from American fiction is it is in no way, shape or form oriented towards New York City, Chicago or Los Angeles. Like this is yeah. it's like oriented towards New Orleans, uh, Richmond and Mexico City or something like that. Those look like those are the you know locational poles and that's the cultural matrix you're working in. And man, and Blood Meridian maybe i can only think of maybe two or three other novels that are really as good as like like lay the texture of this part of the world you know down so perfectly but why is it uh, i noticed that like the fascination among the e-write with uh cormac mccarthy has has grown and I know he got like, as soon as he died, you have the usual like hit pieces of like, he mistreated his wife and he like, you know, like young white men, like sensitive young men read him. And so I saw this uh, Talia Lavin tweet about why he was dangerous or whatever. And of course, like she hates him because sensitive young men read Cormac McCarthy. And so I wonder like, Wait, this is a thing there's been yeah. hit pieces. Yes. Yes. There has. That there's he's like, a hit piece do, after any major writer celebrity. Wait, yeah, bring like, like, bring me up to speed on this. I was going to say, because this is one of the things that I had to say was that, you know, in terms of like press reaction, I've actually been kind of first time in my life. I've been sort of proud of the way it's like, you know, Kausman from Art of Dark. He said somebody asked like the other day, they were like, uh, you know, when they died, there's like, well, I don't know. There's a Danish guy. He was like, well, Cormac McCarthy, he's a writer. And Kausman said, depending on how you look at this sort of thing, he Cormac McCarthy may have been the greatest living American, you know, oh, yeah. like he especially if you if you think about think about it in terms of like like relative to the next closest like competitor in his specific craft he was certainly probably the greatest but oh, yeah. i've not seen much negative in fact the like the, comp the only complaint that i've had is that like a literary establishment that really hated him most of his career and that he's mostly and that he also he didn't like them at all yeah um that they've actually been kind of you know like cautiously celebratory and i didn't expect that i was expecting to see hit pieces and i haven't so they are out there why why did they hit him so i know he refused to give interviews the literary establishment but also like i i guess nowadays they're framing him as like do bro literature i mean prude you, you've seen more than me i just saw the talia lavin tweets and i saw the, the one of the tweet about his wife or whatever how he was poor you go ahead, go ahead. I, I, don't well, I mean, the, the the few hit pieces I've seen have been in relationship to his uh, his wife or his ex-wife. As uh, and there's some crazy stories about that as well. Uh, his like conscious decision about poverty. You know, why don't you just give a talk and you know do that, make some money, and he opted not to. You know, and again, these are stories from his wife or ex-wife. So I mean, it's not like these are anything new. But I mean, there are some pieces that I think are just a little overtly political that you're probably going to run in the mill and see but i mean most people i think thank god outside of just a few pieces have been primarily lionizing him and i, I yeah I, I i'd like to keep it that way in, in a sense i'm glad that we did this three days later because there's some things first of all like when, when you know the moment he died I mean, we were talking about that in the old glory chat or whatever it's like you know, like and i was like i was like the, the really clever the really big magazines like atlantic and uh you know new york times group you know, places like that they had this obituary written already okay you know they just be like because that's the way they work it's the way big newsrooms work there's like on like really time sensitive issues that you know they know they're gonna have to cover something there is a pre-written obituary of cormac mccarthy that is periodically updated 
Oh, yeah. It's kind of like what the kind of like what the British do for the Queen, you know, did for the Queens. Like you know that that was already that was all ready to go, um, but all the heavy hitters pretty much have gone, and like you know they they shot their shot. And the only one that I saw that really took a swipe at him was New York Times, and they called him they called him a dark, and arguably this wasn't because there are people that think of Corm. There are even people that positively think of Cormac McCarthy as like a. Um, positive uh, or a you know a, a stark nihilist or like a you know exposing the dark side of America or you know something like that. I don't really think that's true. I think it's a bad reading of him, but it's a common enough reading of him that you can't really complain that New York Times goes with this, you know. Um, yeah. But I've been really I was like, I was like wow, like you know the New Yorker. You know, and this is a guy that I mean literally, he was our guy. Okay. Like, that's not, like, even a joke. I'm not, like, I don't have to couch that in strange punctuation or anything like that. This, this dude is our dude, okay? Like, and up until a couple of days ago, there were not, there were a couple of people whose living presence on the planet sort of assured me that, like, someone somewhere that people listen to thinks about things almost the same way I do. You know, that was, and that was, it was comforting. He's gone now. Man. You know, I would have I would have expected a lot more dancing on his grave. I thought it was very interesting that there hasn't been a lot of it. But I guess you know, Talia Levin, of course, is the direction she's got to go. I mean, yeah, of course. <laughs> but how is the ER guy? Like, I mean, apart from the the themes and sort of like the celebration of a very like violent, almost Faustian masculinity, was he personally based? Like, did he have based opinions? I mean, did he vote for Trump? I mean, what was? How was the ER guy? He never. He said he doesn't think poets should vote. So, like, I mean, there are almost are no politics here, whatsoever. Though, I mean, in fact, he like he does very sneaky things, especially in his later fiction, that like lets you know he's following politics, but maybe not necessarily following them too closely, right? Or, or maybe not necessarily entertained by them. So he does this. He has this in the passenger. He's got this character that's a transgender. Okay, but this transgender is this over-the-top feminine thing that you know, it's in. They're in this. They're in this restaurant in New Orleans. It's two called Two Jacks. It's you know, like gets up and gives this speech about how it believes in gender, you know, and like you, so you can tell this guy's paying attention. I don't think he's really. Inter- I don't think he was really entertained by like I guess what you call like trench politics or right. you know, frontline politics. But civilizationally, yeah, no, he's very aligned with us. He has this concept. Uh, it actually, the way it really actually, let me ask, I'll, let me, I'll tell this because I want to hear how the two of you first encountered Cormac McCarthy. I'll tell you how I was. And this was in 2007, uh, a year, about a year after the road had come out and mm. 2007, I read, he did, he gave a rare interview for Rolling Stone magazine at the time I was a subscriber of Rolling Stone magazine. <laughs> that, that was an eventful year in my life. That was the year I discovered the Grateful Dead, Hunter S. Thompson, Bob Dylan, and Cormac McCarthy and Santa Fe Institute. So I was like, wow, you know, boom, that's the big bang of Chris Sambach. But the, um, it's just, and you can go read it. It's, it's unlocked his interview that he gives. And he starts, he talks about how, you know, he's very concerned about, and this is 10 years, 10, 15 years ago. He's concerned about things like social media, uh, you know, identity fragmentation. Uh, he's uh, thing he's most concerned about though, is man's endless propensity for violence, which I think yeah. probably if there's a base baseline characteristic of 
right wing thought? Like, what is the distinction between the right and left at the most visceral level? It's going to be this probably something along the lines of do you believe that, you know, eternal war is an inevitability? Right. And, and Corbin McCarthy definitely did. Um, but, you know, on on other fronts, okay, for instance, he's um, he's very interested in in ecology. You know, he's a, he's a bug bro, and almost in the same way Ernst Jünger was. You know, Ernst Jünger is this anti, you know, he's this, uh, he's an amateur entomologist. And McCarthy is this guy that he prefers to hang out with physicists and ecologists. And, you know, whenever he writes about things like trout, when he writes about, uh, when he writes about, you know, hawks and everything like he's doing this not from a sentimental perspective at all. You know, he's doing this from a very sort of hard nosed, um, you know, just like, like laws, you know, eternal laws of nature. He certainly believes that there is a, at least early in his career. And I think later in his career, he does too. Later in his career, I think he's, what he thinks the stru- the underlying fundamental structure of the universe is changes, but he firmly believes in hierarchy in the, yeah. you know, in, in, in another sense of the word, this guy, I mean, this guy, it's, I, I have a hard time imagining. I have a hard time imagining a guy that's more our guy because kind of my concept of what our guy is, is him. You he's know? a man outside of time. And I can see why yeah. he was attracted to Spangler. Like who was also incredibly interested in botany. I mean, he gets that from Goethe. But my first encounter, really quick before Prude goes, um, I was a kid in like two thousand. How was how old was I? In, I was born ninety two. How old was I in two thousand seven? I was just be. I was almost in high school. Um, yeah. And I remember. I don't know how I found out about the road because I just read. Um, I am legend, and I think there was some other someone mentioned to me about, well, the road is like, you would like that. And then I read the road and it was amazing. I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. Um, there were certain parts that were confusing that I, I, controversial take, I think in some ways is better suited for film. Like when he jumps back with his wife. Uh, but I think like, I didn't know this at the time, of course, cause I was just doing it because, Oh, it's post-apocalyptic, you know, it's cannibalism. Of course, like I'm legend, it's vampire zombies, blah, blah, blah. But now I look back, it really is sort of, I think, one of the very few positive depictions of fatherhood and sacrifice in our current contemporary world. It's one of the very few depictions of a more realistic portrayal of what would happen in a, I believe it was a nuclear apocalypse. Um, so I think like the road really struck a chord with me and, and like the charge that he's a nihilist is sort of like ridiculous. It's like, you know, calling Nietzsche a nihilist. We have a super chat about that, but anyways, Prude, go ahead. How did you first encounter uh, Cormac McCarthy. Uh, high school, I had I had watched uh, The Road, the film adaptation, um, and you know someone had told me that it was based off You're a book. Two years younger than me, that's why. Yeah. I, I am I am three years younger than you, Gio. Yeah, um, and so and you're three years younger than me, Gio. <laughs> oh man, that's that's crazy. Uh, yeah. no, nothing's a coincidence. Uh, and so. <laughs> Um, no, I had someone tell me that it was based off a book, and so I checked it out at my high school library, and I first that was the first one I had ever read by Cormac McCarthy was The Road, and it was sort of a whiplash from how the movie takes the story uh, yeah. in comparison to how atmospherically depressing 
the the road is. I'm not even talking about like the the, the stuff that the characters do. I'm talking about the sheer atmospheric setting of the apocalypse. Uh, it is gone to shit, and he makes it very clear in the first five pages how bad things are. And so um, after that, I just started reading his other stuff. Uh, the, the second book of Cormac McCarthy's I read was All the Pretty Horses, um, in part also because it was the film adaptation. And so I read that, and then eventually I got to, to Blood Meridian probably about five years ago. Um, and then I definitely understand why it's sort of the, the memeable Western, literally me book. Uh, but that was my first exposure was actually the, the, the film, The Road. Oh, yeah. And Viggo Mortensen did an amazing job. Um, oh, yeah. It's, it, it's a great movie. Although I, I, I Googled the film just to see what had happened, uh, who, who played the child. And it's just like this most dysgenic looking with a name that almost makes me think he's English uh, just because he looks that messed up. But uh, no, does he born... play in anything after or no? Uh, yeah, actually. Oh, because he was diagnosed with like ankylosing spondylitis. Some. Oh of... God! Never that... mind. Well, I, I can't. So he is dysgenic. Yeah. Um... <laughs> oh my God. Out of all the conditions, Australian I would wanna... actor. Yeah. Okay. I would want to have that the least. I mean, that just destroys your back and constant pain. He's also blind in in one eye, but yeah. Oh my uh... God. Because he looks normal as a kid in like 2009 when the film did they came out. film this in a nuclear waste dump? Is that what happened? <laughs> I, I, I like don't. That, that's what happened to Terry. I don't know, but he was he's born in Australia. Um, his oh, older dude. sister is the actress and singer Sinona uh, Smith McPhee. But yeah, I, I looked it up and I was like, oh, you know this dude's an, an English actor. Um, but that's a that's a side note. I was just looking it up. Yeah, you if say that kid English actor anything. like. English psychologists. These uh, these English actors, what do they want? These English actors, these incestuous bunch, just like another form of Hollywood actor. But you know, it's that's just that's the case. Um But that's like that's like that's how they say Tarkovsky died of cancer. But that was I mean, who knows what the Soviets did to him? But anyways, that's another I was really hoping one of you would tell me that you all are part of like the recent, like specifically E right wave of Cormac McCarthy appreciators. Oh, we are, but it's just I haven't I, I we, an earlier exposure that we can cash our chips in now with the E right you know meme plex of Cormac McCarthy right. fans. Because I mean I'm now, Astro did at, a, at all. Like, like, I did I didn't read Blood Meridian until very I didn't read Blood Meridian actually till last year. Like the books that it's the, the the Santa Fe Institute stuff and then the Passenger and No Country for Old Men. The later work actually is the stuff that uh and because I mean I can crawl inside one book and stay there for like a year and a half and just like just, oh, yeah. just fire off different readings of it. And uh so that's most almost all of my interest in him has been really in his late career. Um so like the the fascination I don't uh, quite understand why he's so magnetic uh, on the eve. Like I mean, Blood Meridian is the E right. It's like Blood Meridian and Brian, Brian, uh, Bronze Age mindset. Those are the books, aren't they? The A uh, Storm of Steel, um, Mishima's. Uh, I don't know. Do right wingers actually read Mishima? They actually read Sea of Fertility. Or uh, probably not, but um, uh, four or five people will, and then disseminate their ideas on podcasts and Substacks, just like every other aspect of the right wing oh, yeah. media ecosystem. It's like it's how I read Foucault, why everyone have to. It's yeah, we it's like well, it's kind of like you and I. We read Foucault, so no one else has to. Um, yeah, or or and, and like Nikki Vallejo in the chat. Uh, that is true about the English. Now, don't tell me how I know this, but I read 
this ethnographic study, apparently among the English aristocracy, that certain uh, zest activity was quite common. It was like, it was like they, they, I don't know, they had, they did it with their siblings. Anyways, go ahead, Prude. What were you saying? That was a distraction. Um, yeah, uh, Nishima. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same way how like maybe ten people in the sphere has probably. I'm being, I'm not being very generous here, but there's like maybe like ten, fifteen people that have read Schmidt and the concept of the political on yeah. dictatorship, crisis, parliamentary democracy. Because uh, everyone memes the friend enemy distinction, but I don't know how many people, if you were to like point a gun to their head, can you actually explain what that means in the context? Nina Pake went into this, but yeah. most people in the right don't understand. Uh, no, no, no. And I think uh, actually Orin and I are going to cover it on Monday um, alongside Nick Land's uh, issue with dialectics and the dark enlightenment, but that's just me shilling haplessly. Uh, I, like it's again, like Cormac McCarthy's received this sort of new E-right love letter, which is funny because we were exposed to him when we were younger as teenagers, but like, um, I wonder how much of that really does have to do with the, the blood meridian thing and the judge and the violence. Cause like for me, if you read the dialogue about like, there's so much religious dialogue in, yeah. in, uh, in blood meridian that that's the far more interesting parts to me than the violence, because it's fundamentally American. We have this opening of course, with respects to the Nacogdoches revival tent, but then you get stuff like, and I'm just going to read off of um, what I got here, you know, is no said to uh, Tobin the gifts of the almighty are weighed and parceled out in a scale peculiar to himself and no fair accountant. And I don't doubt, but what he had first admitted is that you put the query before him bold face who the almighty, the almighty, the ex priest shook his head. He glanced across the fire towards the judge, the great hairless thing. You wouldn't think to look at him the way he could outdance the devil himself. Now would you? God is a man is his dancer. You'll not take that away from him and a fiddle. It's the greatest fiddler I ever heard on the end of it. The greatest he cut a trail, shoot a rifle, ride a horse, track a deer. He's been all over the world, him and the governor, and sat up till breakfast, and it was Paris this and London that and five languages, and you have to give something of a herd of them. The governor's leaned a, man, a learned man himself, but the judge, the ex-priest, shook his head. Oh, it may be the Lord's way of showing how little store sets by the learned. Whatever could it mean to one who knows all? He's an uncommon love for the common man, and godly wisdom resides in the least of things, that it may be well the voice of the Almighty speaks most profoundly in such beings as those that live in silence themselves. I mean, like, Whoa. you're not going to find that anywhere else. And I would highly recommend that you get the... Um, the I love audio, how you switch to your real voice. The that. audiobook version of that. Because um, I'm playing off the guy who did the audio recording, who has probably the best if you want to experience like a quote unquote, like cinematic version of blood Meridian, I'm not going to, I probably won't watch any film adaptation of this book. Cause I'm terrified of what they're going to do to it in the year of our Lord. Oh my God. Yeah. But, um, listen to the audiobook recording and I'm going to try and see if I can get the, the dude's voice. So you know, which one to listen to. Cause it's, um, yeah. it's the best. Uh, so I'm going to look that up. But as a side note, I didn't mean that as an like anti Anglo posting. I was just saying that, there was a hyperpendency among the aristocracy, but I think that anti-Anglo posting is cool. And I have a lot of uh, positive things to say about the Anglo. I mean, I did flirt with anti-Anglo ideas back in the uh, 2010s, but I think that the Anglo is a very complicated thing. I think even Spangler uh, gets the Anglo wrong. I think there is a lot of Faustianism within the Anglo. But anyways, um, Listen, I used to smoke anti-Anglo ideas behind the dumpster in my house. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be part of the pine tree Twitter. Um, anyways, <laughs> you have a lot of thoughts, the Anglo Christopher, but anyways, um, about blood Meridian, uh, this takes place 
does it take place in the the indigenous wars um if i recall or 1849 it takes yeah. really the last it's the 1840s so yeah like, so like think gold gold rush um the this is a time whenever the west whenever what is really thought of as the west is really the area from like in the the well in the north it goes all the way up to canada but um it, you know natchez is kind of the start of the west and the west kind of ends not too far into texas blood raining they're going down through mexico and you have to because there's not really a good way to get to you know somewhere like california yet from there you know, like your 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 route to the Pacific is gonna like, center of Texas, and then pretty much yeah. gotta go down to Mexico because uh, there's only one road, and the road goes to Mexico City. You know. Yeah. No. No. Listen. Um. Like Dylan has a great point in the chat, but I I should only read it if you give me a super chat. But you know what? It is such a great point. I see the judge's entropy fits in everywhere, brings about the chaos that doesn't necessarily end up in violence, though there is no substitute for it. Gladstone is way more interesting to me. Um, is Judge Holden really a force of nature? I would take it. The Judge Holden is a particularly um, bred American creature that is dealing with the sort of metaphysical insanity um, of of the frontier, or is that maybe just me reading too much into it? Um, I mean, both of you. This is a question for both of you, being Americans. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, this, there's certainly that reading of it. To me, really, the judge is. And oh my God, this is a chance to because that you know I use that phrase solemn providence all the damn time and everyone's like, what is it? You even and Nick Lamb. <laughs> yeah, know? solemn providence. Um, yeah. But um, the judge is a very good manifestation of it. And this is when you talk about Anglo's again. This is we're definitely squarely in the in the, ang- the Anglo-American literary tradition. Yeah. So the judge is a Miltonian Satan type figure okay and really and really if we want to get all the way into it what's sort of going on is the judge is the judge is a is a as a character is representative of um not, I, I don't know that i would say entropy but i would say he is he's actually a manifestation of the rationalization process right okay? so this this like dialectical process of of rationalizing and really smoothing the contours of the map, making things known. Okay. And you do um, the elimination of the esoteric. Uh, this, this is, he's very representative of this tendency in the Anglo-American world to have these sort of, you know, these characters that can desacralization, sort of desacralization. They can explain everything. The wizard, for instance, is another is an, another type of figure that are, you're the Prospero wizard from Shakespeare's, you know, Tempest. The judge is a figure in this vein. Milton Satan, Prospero's, you know, oh, Prospero from the Tempest. Um, he's a, he's, he's a, a character that threatens the very concept of the he's both a manifestation of the frontier and yet he also threatens the concept of the frontier okay because you know his his ability his tendency to rationalize things um will remove the unknowability it you know it uh encloses the map in 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 a way that makes frontier impossible so it's you know this this very vicious uh self-negation 
you know, self self negational aspect of of Anglo American culture is really the way I see. It's just the, the way the judge comes off to me. And then, because yeah. characters like this are only really interesting if they're not if they're well written, and you you could see schlocky versions of this character everywhere. But you really the the and the reason callbacks is you know Milton Satan because the thing you think about Milton Satan is. The, Thing that is remarked on is the dazzling aspect of the prose and in blood meridian you have this character this is a story there are almost no characters in this story like there's you know there's characters that have names and things like this but you don't know you don't learn anything about them the only thing you have really the only truly magnetic force that exists in this entire novel are this, this character the judge and in particular the things he says you know it's this this incredible mastery of language you know this takes this sacred concept that is language and you know and he he flattens it he's able to you know he, he's he's able to, it, it is known to him and he dispenses you know he dispenses wisdom with language um oh, yeah. it, that's that's the that's the to me that's the role that the judge plays i didn't i didn't mean to go on for that long man i just got started and, I mean, it's kind of hard to not rant and rave about him, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, for me, I think that the judge kind of is the character of cold, calculated means of which to justify unspeakable violence. Yeah. Um, like I, I had mentioned this earlier, I don't know if Sam Betridge came back on well, we before he had came, it was off the air for those little two seconds there, but like, we talked about this in the old glory club is sort of like that American ethnogenesis for like new England, you know, is King Philip's war. And then later that kind of gets expanded in the seven years war, what we call the French and Indian war. And, you know, any historical reading of, um, you know, the early settlers of American contact with the natives is brutalizing unspeakable violence that sort of does not go to the contrary, like to the, the, the confines and connotations of what it means for say European warfare by yeah. the turn of like the 17th, 18th centuries. And so, and you can read these stories and there are a lot of them to such a point, And Sam Batch and I have talked about this before on, on my channel that, you know, slavery slash captive narratives of living under the Indians was a pop. I don't want to say like a pop culture phenomenon, but it, it really was. Um, and that's that's something that I think people need to really realize in that that instance. And so, you know, expansion outward is this brutalizing war of racial extermination. Uh, and you know, if the, if you want to know what you, race you would almost <laughs> you almost have to go to like Eastern European peasantry. You kind of have to find this level of violence. Yeah, you you kind of have to. But I'm gonna try and ramble on here for a little bit. For a second. sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I just no problem. Um, so yeah, Judge Holden sort of exemplifies what this is, is, is that for a lot of these sort of settlers, especially sort of the well-educated that sort of has this sort of pioneerism to it, the sort of nation of settlers bit is, is that, I mean, you consider, you know, for instance, the, even the earlier ones like Lewis and Clark, these are actually really well-educated men. The, these are your mix of sort of high class. I can finance this and I can curry favor with my government to finance uh, the expenditures of my journey. And if I can come back, not only will I be richer, 
but I can take along with this and enrich myself with knowledge. There is that sort of, I guess what you'd call a Faustian desire to it. Whereas in like Blood Meridian, like Judge Holden kind of is this character that is the embodiment of like pure cold rationalization. There's not a real human feature to him. He is described as a pale, hairless man who's almost seven feet tall. I think he says in the book, he's like six foot six in his moccasins. And so he's just this ability to be well-learned, speak various languages, but here he is out here with these sort of, you know, mercenaries going through Mexico to get to California, because again, there's no real roads all the way back there yet, not in the 1840s. You really won't really see that expanded until the Continental Railroad project kicks off, but that's, you know, about 5, 10, 15 years later. And so what comes from that is, is that this man is large, massive, but at the same time, very quiet. You know, most people are kind of shocked when he makes his presence known. And everything about him in the book, outside of the unspeakable violence, is, is, you know, he can carry a cannon in one arm and fire it off. He can crush a man's skull that it seems so light, but he bleeds from his ears. Uh, you're there for his wisdom. You're there for what it means to survive and what it means to rationalize, especially if you're playing through the eyes of the kid, um, this sort of waxing poetic about the nature of, how do I reconcile the ideas of unspeakable violence, racial extermination, uh, making it your own way, and then still being well-read enough to wax poetically about the Christian God? Um, and you get various different points. You have the ex-priest, and then you have this sort of like weird... I, it's alluded to the sort of like this Dutch reform tradition because of all the things that he can do. He can speak. But he kind of also knows about native superstitions, about portraiture and taking pictures and things like that. It's just... Man. He's, um, to me, Cormac McCarthy just kind of highlights what that mentality must have been like for a, a, an American breed that isn't around anymore. Or, well, I, I mean, still around, maybe there's, he may have been the last one. I don't, you know, I don't know. I, like, I, I'm on the fence about that sometimes because I can look occasionally. Is that sort of character still around? And it's fast. This is, Okay, one of the, so the historical context in historical context, what the judge is is a filibuster. You know, there's almost no, and you know, there are earlier drafts of this. It's kind of fascinating the process by which Blood Meridian is written, which is Cormac McCarthy essentially wrote a large story that was very fleshed out, very emotive, and then spent ten years removing every word from it he possibly could. Okay, so like it's like almost like he writes the story out for himself. And then through the subsequent 10 years of it, it like it is sort of, you know, he removes more and more details that they that exist only in his mind. OK, which is sort of what happens. And this is how you get like that incredible sparseness at the end of it, because it's like it was a book that was written and then ripped apart. Um, but some of the early, you know, the early drafts of it, they make allusions to the ethnicity of the kid and of the judge. And like they're, you know some Spanish blood, <clears throat> some Spanish blood, some ink, some English blood, you know, um, you know, uh, the American ethnogenesis. Yeah. Mysteriously Irish somehow, you know, a little bit <laughs> of everything is in there, but there are these, but there are, and there, there is these historical figures that, you know, like, where's that Dutch reform shit come from? There's this famous character that was one of the founders of the area around Nacogdoches, Texas. That was virtually the Baron of Bastrop. He was a, you know, he was a, Dutch, born in a Dutch colony, uh, goes back to 
goes back to Europe, fights in the Napoleonic Wars, the last inter-European wars, um, fights on the wrong side. So he's got to get out, of get out of Dodge again. And after, you know, he takes Napoleon's side and after Napoleon, you know, after Napoleon gets waxed, he appears in the borderlands between Texas and Louisiana as, you know, one of the early founders, one of the early figures to cross over into Texas. These are historical figures. Another one, the most famous one is, of course, William Walker. And when you're talking about the American West, it's easy to think of like individualism, rugged individualism, this sort of thing over and over again. And I'm going to take a shot at my own people here because I get really sick all the time of the, yeah, the cavalier culture, you know, moonlight magnolias, that sort of thing. And I love it, actually. I mean, I love doing that sort of thing occasionally, but I like to take in Cormac McCarthy. The best Southern writers are always very good at this. Faulkner is good at it. Walker Percy is good at it. Uh, and Cormac McCarthy may be the master of it, which is to take the South and just blast it in a way that kind of makes us weirdly proud of his ability to blast it. And he will constantly remind us that there's a darkness, there's a rot, there's some sort of strange Christ-haunted rot at the core of the Southern soul. And even when we leave and go somewhere out West, we bring this this strangeness with us, okay? And, you know, and like maybe... But it's not in the way like a libtard would think about like this darkness to the south as being like prejudiced no. and backwards it's a different type of darkness right yeah 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 like uh, almost like this, like this like layer of rot that's on the underside of a leaf that's been sitting in a pile for a while or something like that we're you know we're a we're a morose people we're a violent we are a violent people like you know white black whatever we're you you, you could sample violent statistics you even white people in this part of the country are considerably more violent than they are everywhere else. Um, we are profit hungry. We are not, we are not very, we're, you know, we're not, we're not very collectivist, but we're also not very individualist. We're perfectly willing to exploit one another. Um, it's a rigid class, you know, rigid hierarchical class society based frankly on how much money you have, you know, how much, is this, how, how much go ahead. Is this still like a, a reality though in the South about the class based thing or no? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's changed. And this is what I was saying whenever I was talking about, do, do we still have this type of person in the South? And, the, you know, part of me wants to say I can see it in like, I can see some aspects of it in like the worst people, what I think in Hicklip, some people I think of as the worst people in the world. But then I can also see, uh, I can also see aspects of it in, um, in just the, the very religious people that you find on the edge of the southern frontiers, you know, people that are still doing things like fishing for a living, people that are still like, you know, involved in one way, shape or form in those very old, you know, very old trades where they're still, you know, they're not as they're not as media focused so much as they are focused on the other people that they're around all day. And this like some of these old southernisms and strange ways have stuck around and they continue to stick around. I sometimes think I'll be the last I'll be the last generation that has any of the distinctiveness, but I'm less certain of that now. I think it, I think it's got a, got a couple more left in it. Just side to, note. To, go, go ahead. I was going to say side note. This is why people don't know this, but when people think of professional wrestling, a lot of this was actually born in the South. Wrestling, the way oh that it was God. a carny pursuit was born in the South, in Georgia, in Florida, Florida Championship Wrestling uh, with the Graham family. Uh, the, like, the, a lot of it's quintessentially like the character you're describing. I can I can think of like all of those like 
you know, those heels that they would produce. Like, yes. Like Snake Black Mulligan. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Land pirates. And here, like, I'm going to, this is just for you, Geo. I'm going to Speculators. make. I'm going to make. <laughs> I'm going to make this admission just for you. And I'm regretting this because now this my docs is actually available. But my mother in the early 1980s, when she was like in college, she was like one of the like, like dancing girls for like Memphis Saturday morning wrestling. Whoa! <laughs> Whoa! She probably like met Austin Idol and all those yeah, old timers. Yeah, like, vicious. Like, yeah, like, like. Oh, man. All his, all his old people. Yeah. That's crazy. She meet Jim. Yeah, probably, you know, I forget it was the booker at the time. I think it was, um, it wasn't Chief J. Strongbow. It was someone else. But, man, that's crazy. That's it. Did she meet Ric Flair? That, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Um, that's, I, whenever but, I occasionally run into other, I'll occasionally let that slip when I talk to other 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 pro wrestling aficionados but yeah that's like that is a perfect perfect expression of it of course also the televangelists are yeah famous we're famous for we're we're famous for our two-timing preacher men of which you know the judge is definitely one of these characters there's a lot of jimmy swaggered in the judge there's a lot of a lot of pat robertson there's a lot of you know man there's an apocalypticism as well that runs through this so that's um Man, I really am. A, people have said I'm a spiritual American. Maybe I should have been born in America. You are and, an American. You are an American. Sorry, bud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's so true. Um, I'm, but Canadians are like the worst example of Americans. But um, you, you prove. I mean, descendants of either like French fur trappers, early English explorers, or a bunch of you know royalist Tories that fled, not wanting to be lynched or have their homes burned down with them in it during the time of the revolution. No, but see, that's what I mean. Canada used to be great. It used to be filled with this archetype. It used to be there. There was, and then it's been yeah. replaced. Then J- Trudeau came along. I mean, Trudeau Senior, the stepfather, Castro, Castro, Castro. Yeah, exactly. And then. You know, it, it, like it was over. It was ju- over. I mean, Canada was a nation of almost, I, w- I wouldn't say exactly in terms of the extreme violence of the American frontiermen, but Canadians definitely did have that spirit of the frontiersmen. I mean, even the French, even the Quebecois with the, the Corps de Bois, the, the, the fur trappers, had this sort of frontier um, idea. Of course, it was markedly different because order was a stan- instantiated, you know, in the gold rush in the Yukon and also in the Laurentians, the government was involved from the beginning, unlike in America where the state were expanded into the frontier. Um, but Canadians still had this, you know, Canadians were the most feared soldiers in world war II because of our propensity for a uh, depraved violence that we would do against uh, the Germans apparently. So it was, you know, I mean, that's what I mean. Like the, the story also, I think is continental it is regional within America, the North America's itself. I mean, I think even like, uh, I don't know if you could extend this to Mexico, but I mean, definitely there's, you know, there's a sort well, of that Mexico's got there. its own story with like the revolution. And I think yeah. the nature of being <laughs> gets to Mexico. I was like, well, we're going to have to think about that one. For I would, yeah. I'd have to, <laughs> I, but I mean, I mean, they have the revolution yeah. and you've got sort of that like weird 
ranchero kind of uh mentality but like i'm not mexican i'm not you know i the most my, my ancestors mexican fought thing. them on more than yeah. one occasion so i really don't have too much to say on that end. the but texas I mean, like, martyrs yeah the well american that, mexican thing is the cult of santa muerte yeah that is yeah the, that is, that's the most american mexican thing but like <laughs> i mean it, it does speak geo to sort of like the differences in frontier culture i mean like to me my favorite stan rogers song is northwest passage because like that is an explicitly canadian song yeah it's not like the, it's not you can listen to most of his work and the ones that are most fundamentally Canadian with people and references into a landmass that I don't have any relation to, but like it's foreign, but yet so familiar I can relate to it. And it, and oh, yeah. it just sort of validates everything that George Grant ever wrote about like the Americanization of Canada. And I think that that's a great loss, but I, I mean, I think that there's also a lot there about like apocalypticism that you just discussed. I mean, like, again, it, you find all of this, where the discussion is about war and religion. And this is why like my blood Meridian is to me, I mean, yeah, there's a story there, but it's this cultural dialogue about what it means to do what you're doing and still adhere to sort of these. Yeah. You know, this, what, what you're being paid to do and what your life depends on. I mean, um, well, that's what I was going to say. Like I, I read this, I had this like blood curdle, blood boiling moment thinking about Obama recently there's this video going around where he's in greece did you see this guys he's mm. in greece and he's no. like this is the birthplace of democracy and like he's like this tr like i i commented on um on uh spirals as a tweet about it i said you know obama being the or no it was Garek obama that tweeted it i i said you know obama's the first like we are the world president but when you think of it like obama being like this educated like supposed like law scholar when he uttered those words, Americans that cling to their guns and religion, he meant this in like such a sardonic shit lib way. But like when you think of it, it's like, yes, oh, Americans clinging to their guns and religion. That's like not in like a negative sense. I'm not like being like a, you know, libtard Canadian saying this. I'm saying this like in an affirmative way. This is the essence of America for a very distinct series of reasons that you two are, you know, in American history. Uh, you two are, you know, acutely aware of, right? Like, yes, Americans clung to their guns and religion. And this is like a foundational thing. So when Obama said that in this sardonic, libtarded way, he was actually reverberating a truth that I think is even deeper than what he thought. And for someone to be like this American constitutional law scholar in like the Harvard Review of uh, Law, it's like, you know, it's, it was fascinating how he uttered that in like a totally like detached boomer liberal way. I mean, it's hard to think of Obama as a boomer, but like, I mean, I, I mean, guess he's black you know, and crack, but like, well, yeah, I mean, but much of his ideas sort of do emerge from that, like new left legal tradition. Yeah. Uh, and he exercised it quite effectively. And it really does illustrate sort of the tolerance of the nation of Islam towards homosexuality as well. But that's a story for mm. another time. But yeah, oh, I mean, you yeah, are right. You are right. Tucker Carlson episode. Uh, that. Thank God for him doing that. But like, yeah, no, you're, you're right though about guns and religion. And I mean, like, again, blood Meridian, highlights this i think a lot i mean there's a whole i'm, I'm gonna read one more bit and then i'll be done um but like there's again it's that discussion over religion guns and how do you justify self-expansion and outright extermination um and so they you know i'll go from here the judge cracked with the back of an axe to the shin bone of an antelope and the hot marrow dripped smoking on the stones they watched him the subject was war 
The good book says that he who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword, says the black. The judge smiled, his face shining with grease. What right man would have it any other way, he said. The good book does indeed encount war and evil, said Irving, yet many a bloody tale of war inside it. It makes no difference what men think of war, said the judge. War endures. As well ask men what they think of stone. War was always here. Before man was, war waited for him. The ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. This is the way it was and will be. That is the way and not some other way. I mean, in that short bit right there, not only do I, again, you, you read this book, I really think more for the judge than anything else, but that these are the questions that get asked. These are the questions that still get debated. Um, and they kind of evolve in their own sort of weird way. Like if you kind of famously think about uh, the 1941 war movie, uh, Sergeant York, which again is a World War One film, which gets turned into like one of the greatest recruiting movies of all time for the Second World War because, you know, we had to, well, it's ultimate recruiting movies, but not because you had to get the draft to get Americans involved in the war. But anyways, uh, it sort of tells us that, you know, these debates over religion still occur. And there's actually a dialogue in Sergeant York that kind of echoes this as well, where, um, who plays him? Is it Cary Grant or something like that? Or Jimmy Stewart? One of the two. Uh, and he's... Wait, you know, Sergeant York? Didn't yeah, Sergeant, Sergeant York. York. Sergeant York played Sergeant York, I think. Uh, no, he did not. <laughs> no, that's Audie Murphy. Audie Murphy. That's Audie Murphy. Himself. Sergeant yeah. York is the 1941 film starring Gary Cooper. Um, Gary Cooper. Gary like Cooper. a strong silent type. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, he's playing sort of this like, you know, Tennessee yokel again, right? And is kind of wants to win a woman over, has this like religious conversion. Anyways, uh, but, you know, he's, he's trying to fight really hard for his conscientious objector because he's like this newly converted non-denom Christian. And, uh, you know, he's, he's arguing with the, the, the head of the basic training camp. And he's just like, well, you know, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And you get this weird narrative, too, inside that movie as well. And I need to I have a review that I need to put out. But it's just like he has this like inner debate. God, country, God, country. Which one do you want to do? Who do you want to serve? Um and it's sort of, and I think that despite it being this sort of like propaganda film, I think it does speak very well to this like really hard hitting cultural question that was, it's been a part of America really since its founding. It's really just been how involved we really want to be outside the world. And then how much right. we really want to focus on like what, you know, Obama sort of derides his guns and religion. And it's very funny because we talked about, Samich and I've talked about this before when we talked about like the war with the Barbary States, the Barbary pirates, like we get this like, very diplomatic boilerplate answer from these like Arab or these, these Ottoman, you know, protectorate States. And they're like, well, the, um, you know, the, these Mohammedans, the, they, they are told by their prophet that, you know, to convert these people and to seize treasure. That's why you have to pay us protection money and to not do it. Cause you're no longer under the English flag. And Thomas Jefferson's like, Oh fuck that. We're going to go to war and exterminate. You woke his, woke his Scots Irish right the fuck up. Didn't it? it like, <laughs> and, and, and enlightenment liberal Thomas Jefferson goes away and drunk redneck Thomas Jefferson shows up like, Oh, what to you a say point to? to a point we win so hard that the Pope himself offers a like blesses our actions saying that we have done more to quell the anti-Christian cause than anyone else has in like a hundred some odd years. And that's uh, anti-papist uh, Protestant anti America. America, who are Thomas Jefferson denies the divinity of Jesus and calls the apostles his biographers. Like that's oh the God. sort of the American um, contradiction yeah. that exists within the, the country as early as its founding. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I like about Blood Meridian is because like Cormac McCarthy writes this in what, 85? 
and he's just sort of highlighting this age old debate. And I mean, even now in this sort of like post-World War II international liberalism, whatever you want to call it, global homo, like there's still that old bleeding edge of what used to be a progressive turn with like William Jennings, Bryan or Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, just talking about like, yeah, we don't need to be involved. Like war was invented. So Americans could learn geography. It's probably my favorite Mark Twain quote of all time. Um, And no, but then a lot of right wingers confuse that. And then that turns into gladio nationalism where it's like America has to like ensure it's like, even though it's like decay. Well, that's another debate. We'll talk about that in stream another time. That's, Anyways, go ahead, Prude. You seem to getting coiled up to be like, well, why the hell shouldn't we glass Russia? <laughs> well, I mean, that's the debate. I don't know. I, I don't want to an experience when the wind blows in 2023, Sam Bish. That's primarily why. <laughs> no, but should Amer- here's a question about the Barbary pirates. I mean, should America be fighting Somali pirates now? Is that like... Yeah, again, I actually think that one... That is I, something... I don't understand why we don't. Like, I think that is like, well, that is... Okay, because you know I work in I work in international international shipping. One of the things is every document that goes on that you know, verifies the you know actual transaction that occurred. You know, so you can't so like just nobody can just walk up to the port at Navashiva and say that twenty foot container is mine. You got paperwork that says this yeah. one's the one you're supposed to get. Every single one of them says this waybill shall be governed by English law. And I'm like, well, where's the Royal Navy? <laughs> you know? <laughs> this is some is Jordan Maxwell type of stuff, like Admiralty Law. When you cross over into the threshold. Anyways, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Sam. Yeah. So you're saying about the pirates? That just makes perfect sense to me. It's like, why would America not be fighting piracy? And like, oh, we got to go do that other thing. Or, you know, oh, we got to maybe subsidies for subsidies for the inner cities. <laughs> like, what but the it, hell? Well, then the American <laughs> Navy might become more uh, piratical as time goes on. It might have to. I mean, there's always been flights of fancy of the American Navy uh, doing acts of piracy. But I think that as the geopolitical, I mean, there is one prediction that people on the pro-Russian side have. That is like as America's geopolitical hegemony crumbles, that it will resort to piracy in these like disparate parts of the world. I mean, that's like a far off prediction, but I mean, certainly it's happened with Russia. I mean, they they've taken like a lot of uh, their assets. I mean, there's also you know Iran has always been ripe for piracy by the American government. I mean, this is I don't mean to like talk like I don't mean to go down like third worldism here, but I mean I think like there is something to be said that there is an exploitation of that American spirit by the current regime that's like in the reins of it. And so I think that's why like a lot of people on the political right in America, at least still have this um, romanticism and that will lead. And I think it leads to uh sort of, you know, again, like nefarious geopolitical ends, but I get what you're coming from Sam Batch. I think that's uh, you know, I mean, it, but anyways, about Blood Meridian, though, if we had any uh, concluding thoughts, I mean, how does the book, I don't know if we should go to spoiler alerts, but I mean, I'm assuming a lot of people have read it already. But um, is it, so is, they, is, is, is someone who's like my degrees in literature, like my, let's get to my first degrees literature in Southern literature. Yeah. Really my, this is really the thing that I like the most, it's the thing I'm most expert on. You can spoil any book for me because like most of the books, like I've, you know, just, you know, just read 30, you know, 40 some is 40 books a month and I would already know the ending to almost all of them before I started reading. <laughs> so like, I mean, like doesn't bother me if you spoil it, but no, but they yeah. cross paths. Like, to, like he, 
keeps interacting with Judge Holden from what I from what I can gather. Like the like the like it seems like the judge is almost like again like a force of nature. Like there's always the ever presence of him is there. And right. um, yeah. So well, Prude is back. He yeah. Did you yeah. seem to? Yes, I had to. I had to. I had to pee. Good you lord! Believe the lizard. Yeah. Yeah. We're not, we're not gossiping or anything. No <laughs> heavens, no! It's not like I can find out on the VOD playback or anything. You like sounded that. You sounded like a racehorse pissing in there. To quote, to quote Vito's metaphor. <laughs> He's gonna change his profile picture. Now the. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not that predictable, you prick. Now, the, the, the thing about – because you all brought up the Corman – I mean, the Frontier thesis whenever – now, because this is what I'm going to – setting up my conclusion here. I've, we're, been, we're being pretty laid back, but I do have a moral message specifically for our guys, and I think – Yeah. Corman's all had, right. I'm not the one who I, gets to be preachy this episode. I, I do have fun. one, <laughs> and you really – and you played right into my – you played right into my clutches – when you brought up the frontier thesis. Oh because, boy. Yeah. I knew because, you would love it. I knew you would yeah. love it. Stimbatch. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, blood Meridian is a novel. I think, yeah, it is totally encapsulated by the frontier thesis. That is, it is the novel of the frontier thesis and the masculinity of the judge and the kid. This is a masculinity of the frontier. In fact, there's a lot of, scholarship has been done on this is a great book called manifest destiny that compares you know that it's nominally it's a study of filibusters the filibuster the filibuster expedition that william walker led to uh you know uh take over nicaragua but in another sense it's a it's a it's a study of american masculinity and which is and there are relatively few studies of masculinity and that sort of thing actually it's kind of unusual that a scholar would take this tack but she compares, she says, there's really, there's, there's this, there's the masculinity of the frontier and the South, the South and the South is the frontier. The South is the frontier. The South is the frontier um, America. There's not as many correlates to this. I mean, there's a couple, but you know, like Wyatt Earp was Canadian. So like, you got to go all the way up to Canada. He goes again, that Canadian frontier, like there's really more resonance in the Canadian frontier story you know, with Southerners than there is in the middle there. The Yankees don't have yeah. a lot of Yankees version of the frontiers. They made San Francisco like, okay. You know, like, but, um, <laughs> but the, you, the masculinity of this, like this kind of violent, um, all of the things that you want to lay, that you want to load, all of the concepts that you want to load this concept of masculinity down with. And Cormac McCarthy personally was able to represent it, you know, and he, he, he represents it in his person to a lot of us, you know, as kind of the, the last bastion of it. Okay. You know, he's the last guy that's like this when he died. It's like, you know, the, the, the last, Oh man, he's just like me. And blood Meridian is his great, you know, sort of his great sort of philosophical representation of that, you know, that masculinity. And McCarthy is very interested in philosophy of history. And he certainly entwines this masculinity with, this frontier theory of history. Okay. And then, and I'm just going to leave that thread sitting there for a while. Cause I, we are going to talk about the passenger at length and I'm going to, I'm going to take a minute to talk about why I think everyone, everyone, and I mean, everyone who has reviewed the passenger so far 
is missing a lot of really important context. And I think they're missing context in incredible number of ways, but there's this one way that I think, and it's specifically referent to this type of masculinity and how it, in, how it exists in the present and how it is entwined with uh, our moving, our, our America, the best of American academia or the best American scholars at the Santa Fe Institute, how it's entwined with their mm. evolving concept of history. But yeah, no, back to y'all for a while, because I'm going to let that base for a minute. I mean, it sits there, but I mean, it kind of encapsulates sort of the ending to the book for Blood Meridian, just the the kid, now the man, sort of meeting this otherworldly judge, says he's one of the last of the true. And I, I think a lot of that kind of, I think about that in the context of the Southern writers, what we would call Southern Gothic. I mean, Cormac McCarthy, and I, I, I have said one of the great, I, when he died, I, I saw the news, I said one of the greats has finally put down his pen for the last time or something like that. Wow. And um, I mean, it's true. I mean, once you're gone, you're gone. I mean, people can yeah. sort of like ghostwrite your legacy. Like, I mean, pulp novelists do this all the time. Like you know, Dean Koontz is not putting out like 50, fucking novels a year he's he's putting out maybe one or two and he's sort of overlooking with his ghost writers and something like that clive clive cussler when he was alive was like this his son is deeply deeply involved in it and i mean like in the art I, world this happens titian had a whole army of people he tried i i uh, yeah i mean it's I, I i bet you it's even more common there than it is well maybe the literary scene's got it more because it's type but i mean like you know and so he's the last like where does this tradition lie now and Sam Match and I were talking about this prior to even like one because we were originally going to do this episode on something else, but like then all this news passed on and so many people have just died in the last couple of days. Ellsberg, Berlusconi, Ted. Well, originally D was stolen by a certain someone yesterday. <laughs> oh well, I mean it kind of worked out for the best. It worked I mean, out for the best. Well, what was yeah. the original idea? What, what was it? Ted the Ted thing. Was yeah. Ted oh. But everyone's yeah, doing it, so it became cool really quickly. And yeah, and I already yeah. gave my take in I am seventeen seventy six. Yeah, and I had some shit lib go to my YouTube comments calling me like an extremist. And I said, I, I condemn terrorism and God bless you for misrepresenting me. Um, yeah. But like you weren't actually arguing uh, like that Ted K, like you were like that 1776 article I read. Uh, it's not like you were saying like Ted K was 100 percent right. And what he does, like, no, it's like you were had a very nuanced take on his actual body of work and like why he was sort of like because ted kaczynski is just mark. like every other political author that anyone ever like talks about on the internet like 12 yeah. people have read his shit and then everything else is just memes man you know and who like, read I him trash road citizen borzy um link petty linkola stan um kenyonez myself meta nomad and that's it you know <laughs> like, i never yeah. read ted i never read ted kaczynski it's just, it's a character that's not really interesting to me in fact it, there's a lot in, in a lot of ways i think cormac mccarthy actually represents the opposite side of a similar genealogy in american thought and i am like wow but really and I, yeah yeah oh yeah I, chad Haig has read him chad exactly that's it chad, it's only yeah. people that's it the, Okay. There's a, you know, there's a, it's like sort of a left-hand path and a right-hand path. And, and McCarthy, I think, fits in a, a tradition that really is like, it's, it is again, and I hate to keep returning to this, but actually I don't hate to keep returning to this because my buddy in the chat, who's always calling me a retard and asking me why, why you record from the side of the street? And it's because I like, because I like to record from, I like to record from public because I'm like a 19th century flaneur. 
Uh, and hundred percent. Yeah. It's yeah. like a night owls episode. You, as you, well. just, you, you just get to wander into my life. It's, it's how, how I imagine streams or whatever, but, but again, it's, it's a very Southern thing. Um, and though there are other, you know, there are sort of other people who've taken up the mantle of it and kind of blended with this, but this, you know, this, this, this nature, this sort of, this, and this very uh, harmonic idea of nature, this very ecological idea of nature, and it, he fits in fits in with a like sort of conservation ethic that I place more with Aldo Leopold, Edward Abbey, um, uh, Paul Kingsnorth even though Kingsnorth is kind of like right on the line between these two types of like sort of environmental consciousness. Uh, but I, I think he's kind of made his position a little more clear in his more recent yeah and posts. Yeah. And and uh, Kirk Patrick Sale is a Kirk Patrick Sale actually he's. A, founder of one of these concepts called bioregionalism or you know bio and i think mccarthy fits in with them very hakanian yeah mccarthy fits in with them and ted k i think is like sort of representative more of like the greta thunberg style of environmentalism extinction rebellion and that sort of thing i think ted ted k honestly i mean he, he was a leftist he fits way better on the left than he does well, Keshawagi had a thread on this where he said that Linkola and Ted K, like they are not that. like the main. <laughs> well, no, but like that they aren't like the sort of like Greta Thunberg nihilistic version of um, apocalyptic environmentalism. That they actually like affirm life in a weird way. Um, but anyways, yeah, that's that's another stream for another time. You, but it's funny you contrast Cormac McCarthy and Ted K, seeing as how they died in the same week. Yeah. They are both representative of sort of like what Spangler called like in the end of civilization when rationalism takes over everything, sort of like a return to like a, a naturalism and a second religiousness in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like but you, anyways, I like how you link that to Spangler right at the very end. I mean, I yeah. think there's a lot of validity to that claim. Because I wrote though. 30 pages on Spangler. That's why my mind is internally <laughs> screwed because <laughs> of my book. Yeah. Uh, no, you kind of need to. But I mean, like, no, I think that what Sambach brings up, though, is very apt in comparison to the two. Because, like, you kind of have this, like, to take, like, the left hand, right hand, and then you have, like, the royal path question. But we can get to that later. But, like, mm. left hand question, right, would be, like, well, you have this over, over socialized fragmented world that sort of Jacques Ellul and Kaczynski write about, um, yeah. which, are, you know, kind of touches on Marshall McLuhan. And that's why I referenced him in the I am 1776 piece. And so like their argument is just like, tear the shit down, rebel against it um, and do by all means to ensure. But like, and even then, right? Like it has this sort of desire to see the end because he writes this piece and I think in the anarchist library, it says the last one of his most recent ones that I think they have on the anarchist library is from like 2011. Uh, why the, why technological, why industrial, why the industrial system will destroy itself. But he very much ends this on this, like for him, I'd imagine it's a very doomer take and I, I can't ever ask him any questions anymore because he's passed away. But it, like he, you know, he ends it sort of saying like, listen, like, Industrial societies will propagate or self-propagating systems. Um, you, you do this through like these collectivizing ways and means to do it, ideologies, religions, traditions, cultures, practices. And from in turn, right, like even if you were to destroy industrial society or like to revert back to it, and you started calling out like conservationists, like, 
you know, and in energy conservationists, when every time they conserve energy, like great, you've just opened up another avenue for the system to keep going in another way. Yeah. Um, why haven't you learned? And so he's sort of like talking, and this sort of relates back to anti-tech revolution. But anyways, like he sort of he he goes off and he sort of ends it sort of like. It, it, this is a, a cycle that is bound to continue lest we take some radical departure. That radical departure never happened. Um, like no, no army of reincarnated Ned Luds is like destroying Amazon, you know, AWS servers. That's not happening. Right. No, um, not yet. Happen. Probably not. But anyways, like, and then on the other hand, McCarthy sort of, I think is like the, the right hand American answer to that question, because it, it's the same question I see, ironically with the people that Sandbatch hates the most and those are tech bros um well i hate them too i lambast them hardcore. oh i i, 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 I i'm not a fan i'm not a fan of them but <laughs> they they are the right hand path option of sort of what's left of that american ephemera which is adapt or die motherfucker like those are your options yeah okay so like on the technology question what do you, what is cormac mccarthy's answers to the technology question look at who he hangs out look at who he hung out with He's at the Santa Fe Institute, you know, where he's hanging out. He's hang, hanging out with the, like these dudes that think like you can spreadsheet, you know, all of his existence. You know, uh, you know he's. Uh, but, I wonder if he uh, ever read Palladium Mag before he died. I wonder yeah, if he you know, partied with Mark Andreessen. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this is on the original tweet. I tagged uh, on the original tweet. I tagged Santa Fe Institute and they smashed like. Whoa! Smash that like button, kids. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that Daniel tweet really got under my skin. Not just because I'm like, which that Nick, but um, no, it's like it really. I'm not that much of a that Nick, but like, it's it really got under my skin because I feel like the current like iteration of the American Empire is diseased and doesn't serve its own people. But I get what you mean. Like the tech bro, unfortunately, has taken on the mantle of this like sort of, um. Faustian exceptionalism. Well, hell, that's why I wrote about them in the obit piece for Ted Kaczynski. I mean, they fly in the face of what he stands for. But I mean, I think both are trying to get to a fundamental aspect of the fact that like, look, in this, and I mean, he's writing about, Ted's writing about this like decades ago. This is a pre-2007 era. We're talking still where like most people got their news from the television and like you could listen to The Only Living Boy in New York by Paul Simon and have a relative feeling that like, yeah, you get all the news you need from the weather report. But like, yeah. nowadays, like I have, you get, people have like a weather app, people got like a regional app for news or whatever. Maybe they don't even pay attention. They just pay attention to the national politics. And we've like forced ourselves into like a global like a digital longhouse. And we talked about this unconscious caracols thing earlier this week, where it was just basically like, he told me this story in like January of last year. And it has like struck with me ever since where he's like in in, in Pretoria, South Africa. And they're just like, Oh yeah. By the way, this guy that looks exactly like me probably has ancestors that go back to like the Huguenots or whatever. And all of a sudden, you know, he's speaking perfect Americanized English. And that's a terrifying thing (laughs) to think about. The ancestors have fled the British. Right. You know? And so like, you can't help but think to yourself, well, like, damn, like you can even say it tongue in cheek, like, Oh, the industrial, revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race but like then you have tech bros that kind of acknowledge this and some of them are are kind of like lol cows at this point like you know i I think of like mr murphy and his uh arranged dating app but he's also like really like just devastated by the fact that he's a father 
um and he tweets about it like i get it sometimes you know like men have a moment where like fatherhood sucks but like i don't know if you want to tweet about it live on mm. air but like you get no, but that's questions. part of his bit he's got a method to that well, sure anyway, sure yeah, sure and uh, maybe it's not the world's greatest method because it's kind of sad but like you get these sort of optimistic well maybe we can master this technology so we're like you have what i guess what you would call like the wild men versus like faustian man where yeah. one wishes to return to the forest and the other says you're missing the forest like you're looking at the trees i'm looking at the forest and what this can be used and I, it's i'm a looking very, at standing very, reserve i'm yeah. looking at standing reserve i'm looking at i'm looking at uh at timber and i'm looking at lumber that can be used to create things and it's the same ironically you see the same debate over social techniques between like quote unquote trads and puas and i will side uh despite my um inclinations to be traditional uh, i do actually agree with what red hawk says nine times out of ten maybe because i have read the same shit he has but like he's oh man like, look. the beaver chat's blowing up right now but he's like but look this. you can't you can't escape um like we live in a digital age like adapt or die and i think that that's sort of what comes down to the fundamental question here and i think you know based off his um associations like mccarthy kind of was you know child of this like tennessee valley authority lawyer and i mean like tva has got its own issues and we can litigate the you know all of the new deal no era. you're exactly right and then wait hold on another theme that creeps in again now may slowly on terms are to introduce the passenger content but of course there you the go you know the passengers of novel about new orleans and it happens in new orleans and uh but the, all the characters all the main characters are from tennessee uh and uh the the two main characters you know alicia western bobby western's brother sister incestuous combo that you know they they, they, they formed the you know the the, no! the, char the characters in the story their backstory is their father worked on the eagle ridge project and you know in in tennessee which is where they you know before they went out to Las Cruces, that's where the nuclear project was based. And it was, you know, it was there because of the, because of the Tennessee Valley Authority. And this, this has, it's this very strange thing that people in middle Tennessee, middle and eastern middle Tennessee, that have like two or three generations of history there, they've all got weird nuclear stories, okay? They've all got stories about these, these Jewish scientists and these, you know, all, this, all these people that came and they, they drained a lake you know, to make, you know, a hydroelectric because they need a hydroelectric dam to create, you know, to, to create this giant particle, you know, particle accelerator. That my they my friend Bob, who's from Tennessee, I went to grad school with, he also has these strange nuclear yeah. stories in his family. Yeah, it's true. So yeah, it's, it's and and so, so, you know, and McCarthy, it's, it's, again, his age, he was born in 33. He's, you know, he's fully cognizant, fully conscious, a fully conscious person when we drop the nuclear bomb and there's a, you know, there's a huge, you know, I think it's kind of a shit libby thing in history. So I don't know how a lot of our guys feel about it, but the, um, there's a, you know, the, the, there's this belief that this, the emergence of this nuclear age is this new thing. Is this, it, this is a thing Ted Kaczynski and Cormac McCarthy would both agree on is that first of all, first of all, that, you know, uh, the way it, the way Cormac McCarthy returns to this evening redness in the West and this, you know, this eternal violence theme is that in uh, the passenger, he has a character say, I think it would be foolish to assume that the 20th century has exhausted history's, you know, limitless well of violence. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. And there's this, this concept in history that once we emerge into this thing, the atomic age that we've changed 
things irrevocably and that the, the nature of the you know the eternal war nature of mankind this creates a pessimistic outlook so you believe these people are permanently that they, 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 they cannot overcome war that they can't do it okay but then you also know that they have brought into existence this single machine that can vaporize whole continents this is the only logical solution is we're toast you right. know it's or, or if you, you start trying to solve this problem and this is where Cormac McCarthy and Ted Kaczynski diverge. Okay. So Ted Kaczynski, and this is a lot of, this is where, you know, Elul will go this other way. We'll go this, this, the same way Kaczynski goes. Pentil and Cola will go the same way. A lot of the deep ecologists will all go the same way. And they'll say that the only, we have to, you know, return to monkey literally. Okay. It's like, we have to, we have to blow woods. you know, smash computers, you know, disembowel computers computers have lost their mind well you know like computers are off their rocker curb yeah Um, computers head off yeah (laughs) and 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 then there's this alternate theory which i'm going to go hang out at the santa fe institute with you know these guys who were you know they're modeling risk they're modeling civilizational risk with like urbit or existential threats yeah yeah or yeah or some you know or some dumbass sort of thing like this and he's you know he's taking a very old anglo-american position in fact actually which is the stewardship position he's like okay so we're faced with the we're gonna have to change we're gonna have to a lot of people say we're gonna have to fundamentally change the way we look at things mccarthy sort of takes this idea and it sort of man- and it manifests itself in the passenger. I'll talk to that. Talk about that in a little bit. But McCarthy takes this 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 idea. He says we're going to have to change. We're going to have to change the way we think of history. We're going to have to change the way we behave. We're going to have to. And this sounds kind of shit libby. Sounds kind of like the left. But the thing Cormac McCarthy did that I always loved is he was always there on behalf of the non-extreme progressive. Not even the extreme because very hard to place politically but he was always there to represent the alternative so like if you know like it's like you know you yes we can change his progress all of that sort of shit he's got this other idea where change doesn't have to be that you know it can we can look actually frequently at our own at our own selves you know and we might have to make some hard decisions about what stays and what doesn't but that you know, there is a way specifically within America. I don't, I don't even know that he would say this about Europe or Spain or Japan or Russia or anywhere like that, that, you know, um, you have to sort of become the Anglo-American that, you know, Japanese people think you are and, you know, <laughs> and is in, you know, in their, in their own way. And that's sort of what, you know, that's what, to me, that's what I see in the Santa Fe Institute stuff. And, the, you know, the, the interest is like, okay, so we have done this thing. We've brought this existential red line risk into the world. We're responsible for it. Okay. We have to manage this risk as best we can. And yeah, if, if we don't take this outlook, then we have to take the Ted Kaczynski outlook. Okay. Well, that's, you know, so that's, that's why, even Teddy Roosevelt believed that about conservationism. That was right. Like, exactly. Was this is why this, this is the this is the anglo-american this is the progression of the anglo-american just in the same way that the frontier represents the sort of landian concept of exit this is and i think land is actually you know i think nick land is coming to this this 
very similar, you know, sort of like thought process that McCarthy oh, has yeah. toward the end of his life. Um, and I think, you know, there, the, this sort of has to be the Anglo-American ecological stewardship of the world uh, that you, you, you have to, you know, you have to take this seriously. We have to start to be honest with ourselves about, you know, certain aspects of, of, you know, of our own weaknesses. We have to be able to play to our strengths. And, and essentially, we have to manage this risk indefinitely. And this is like, you know, there, there's the, 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 you know, there's the, we've just, when we say this, we have to manage this risk indefinitely. We've just broken the cyclical theory of history. We're no longer there. So if you believe in the cyclical theory of history, you believe this risk can't be managed, you know, uh, that it's, it's going to happen inevitably. And oh, so, yeah. like, this cyclical theory with nukes equals everybody dies. And it's so, like, you know, well, I mean, something's that would breaking be, that would be either the way. Concern, that would be the concern, though, that are raised by, I mean, some of them would consider locales, but I mean, like a lot of the rationalist camp would probably argue. Nick Bostrom. Yeah, Nick Bostrom, especially with the vulnerable world hypothesis. Like, look, it's either like the cyclical history, the cyclical theory of history happens, and with nukes or um, technological info hazards, like, say, in his example, right, he's like, well, what if it was, like, really easy to make a nuclear bomb with, like, household materials and blah, 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 blah. It's an interesting paper. You can go listen to it actually be narrated by Skeptical Waves. I thought it was interesting. Um, but, like, he was yeah. definitely advocating for, like, how do we break it with the ability to control things? And then there are others that would say that it's not likely to happen. And then you get the sort of Spangler bit, like, the, the revolt against nature is futile, and we're going to fight it out to the bloody end. But, like, it's also funny because, like, guess who got their start in Santa Fe? It's David Lynch got his Associate of Arts at Santa Fe College. Oh, and, my God. The and, we're, and you mentioned the connections are endless. Yes, the connections are endless. And if you've seen Twin Peaks Season 3, The Return, one of the best and most surreal fucking episodes of that entire thing opens up. And it's sort of the creation of, like, the Bob entity from the first two seasons, this demon thing that, you know, plays a central part to the murder of Laura Palmer, you know, Fire Walk With Me, and even plays a part into, like, you know, um, Kyle MacLachlan's character, Agent Cooper, trying to, like, fix everything from the past. And it opens up this great evil is unleashed to the Trinity site in Los Alamos. And, you know, the explosion of the first nuclear weapon unleashes the kind of evil that the great powers that be, in his instance, uh, kind of an that's, awesome interpretation. That's funny because... Send out the, the Laura Palmer character. Well, the series Carnival had the same thing about Trinity. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. People don't mention Carnival. It's a but forgotten, like, you know... But, like but, Lin yeah, but Lynch himself is, is part of ironically i think kind of part of this that like actually no like the, the great wellspring of human violence towards man and the evils both worldly and otherworldly do still exist from the 20th century and we live in under the long nuclear sort of damocles that still is with us and um it's just something i find very interesting that even D uh david lynch of all people uh finds in this weird intersection we need well, to bring back that helios thread about how nuclear energy is demon energy I remember I went schizo one time on that and Keith Woods was like, Gio, Gio, what are you talking about? <laughs> I got ratioed pretty hard once by saying that uh, nuclear power is demonic. But anyways, go ahead. I, I know that's not popular now. I mean, I, I shouldn't admit that. but That's pretty um, cool now. That'll get me ratioed by certain well, anime accounts. But anyways, go ahead. Go ahead. I thought you were friends with the anime accounts. The, there, the, there could be anime accounts here. This is another thing that I wanted to point out with respect to Cormac McCarthy because of the Santa Fe Institute stuff. So, like, a, a, and really, a lot of this reflects this sort of conceptual theory of the, uh, the evolution of this theory of history. Which, I mean, McCarthy himself is almost beyond almost beyond the nation state in the way he sorts of starts to think of history and you know the past and 
if if you want like a like a little bit of a window into like what the contemporary elite view of the world is, you know, it's we're tended to we're not gonna look at your we're gonna we're not gonna look at your national affiliations so much. We're gonna look at your institutional affiliations quite a bit. The Santa Fe Institute is undoubtedly one of the like top you know, it's very, very influential institution within the regime you know there's an archipelago of these think tanks that i have and i like to talk about a lot of them but you know like there's the argonne labs at university of chicago the center for the advanced study of behavior at stanford um all of a lot of these places that really whenever you're talking if you want to go grab a metaphor like cathedral this is where they really are okay and um Tavistock Institute's another one, but the um, the existence of Cormac McCarthy inside this perimeter that they is like it's like when you talk about your guy that you've got on the inside that was him, you know he was the guy you know he was really in a lot of he's the guy that's gonna you know he's the white man who's not afraid to talk about Jewish power on page one of his last novel. You know, or, you know, something like this guy, he's this almost uncancelable figure. You can, you, and finding him inside the network of this, you, when you look at the Santa Fe Institute, you're looking at a, you're looking at a, you know, group of people that are on the absolute, they're on such the bleeding edge of what is considered contemporary, you know, intellectualism that it's hard to assign them positionality. You know, positionality really comes later. It's a it, it, as a process of categorization. So, like, someone goes out there and finds a new thing. Maybe it's world systems theory. You know, like broad, uh, not Brodell. Uh, well, who was what was his name? Wallerstein. Wallerstein. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So someone goes finds world. You know, world systems theory. What is it? You know, it's like I don't know. It doesn't really sound leftist. Doesn't really sound rightist. It takes a long time for this thing to be you know, classified and assigned a category. And McCarthy is one of these characters. The reason he's hard to hard sometimes to nebulously call him right wing figures because he's way out there in advance of what's going to be called right wing. Right. So like, and I I think this is, and I think this is a very important point with respect to him because, you know, especially his last two novels, they're almost like this, they're almost a plaintive, they're almost a plea to American men to sort of like recognize maybe I'm not saying stop clinging to your guns and Bibles. I don't think he would ever say that. Really don't think he would ever say that. You are going to have to like, you are going to have to update yourself. Like, look at this. Um, You know, that this is where the ground is being contested, you know, on these questions. Okay. So what is, is history cyclical or linear? That's no fun. Is history topographical? Is history topological? Is there a shape to history? Is history a real thing? You know, what is the dimensionality of history? What is the dimensionality of a state, right? Rather than you know, like, you know, these more a lot of these more process-oriented questions. I think he's, you know, he's he's really he's begging certain aspects of American society that have been disengaged from this debate. Okay, you, like, there's no way to claim that, you know, like oh, what we would consider to be like red-blooded American men, or like the meteor side of America. There's no question that we're currently incredibly outnumbered you know on the bleeding edge of you 
what you would think of as intellectualism. And, you know, he, right. it's, in a lot of ways, this is a, this book, this last set of books he writes is a primer for, this is where it's at. You know, this is where we're at. So even it's a oh, Spangler landmark. It's like, so we're going to talk about Spangler here. And then we're going to talk about what is good from Spangler, what you can keep from Spangler. Okay. And that's, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, it almost these last two books that he writes, in addition to being, I think probably the best, the best books of the last 50 years, there's almost, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a didactic subthread in them that seems aimed at a very peculiar population. And I think all, all three of us are in it. And I think everyone's listening to his talker in it, you know, he's talking very specifically to us and like, you look at him, you say, he's, Oh man, he's just like me. It's because he is, he literally is just like you, you know? And you know, he's, got some stuff to say because he knows he's about to die he's like i'm about to die here look i'm like here's here it is it's in it's in the code here's the codex but let me ask you though i want to get to prove but let me ask you how does the road fit into his corpus then in terms of his grand vision of things is is that sort of like the lincolnian like shall life prevail sort of thing um i think this is yeah the the road is this point where i mean the road is this test where you know, in terms of all all great artists have to have these transitional moments in their career, and yeah. the, the the road really for me, the, like to me, this signifies this kind of um, very similar to Shakespeare entering his last phase, where you know the distinct the boundaries between tragedy and comedy are going to start to fall, you know, going to start to mm. fall apart, and, and he yeah. does it in this very backwards way, of course, by writing the bleakest novel I think maybe possibly it's ever been written. Um, and then gives it a happy ending. It's the only happy ending that we get in any Cormac McCarthy novel. <laughs> period. You know, yeah. it's like oh, like ah, oh, so that's how you're gonna that's how you're gonna invert this trope or whatever. But that choice that he makes to choose to turn away from nihilism, to turn away from the bleak ending, I think that signals that signals that that is a start that is a shift in his career in his in his own method of thinking, and like sort of plateau what brings us on to the plateau this 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 sort of late stage gray eminence style figure that 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 mccarthy becomes that's where the road really comes in for me i will admit i don't like the road all that much i guess like no? I, it's just, it, it makes uh. me it makes me so squeamish it, like I, yeah. i'm so squeamish it's like just unrelenting bleakness <laughs> yeah no but that's what i mean like it seems there's a th- there's like this throw like there's through line between so many like quintessential American figures to go back to the frontier thesis, you could say the cowboy, the mercenary, um, the pro wrestler, especially in the Southern iterations, the way that they would travel and so forth. Um, Then finally, like the post-apocalyptic figure, like in the road, like I think like really, I know this is going to sound stupid, but the quintessential American song is wherever I may roam by Metallica. Like think of it like where where am I? You were gonna do that, but I was gonna think I was gonna say all along the watchtower, you know. Oh yeah, that uh, yeah, that's two riders yeah, in the distance. Hendrix, but... The wind began to howl, you know. Same yeah, that, yeah, that that that, no, that image think... appears over and over, yeah. But think of it like rover water, nomad vagabond, call me what you will. Like it's like you know where I where I may <laughs> wherever my roam, uh, where I lay my head is home. Like that's, you know what I mean? Like there's something about the explorer or the, I yeah. I would say it's different than the, like the European colonial adventure. It's very much like enclosed within its world, but it's, it's a, yeah, the highwayman is another one. Like there's something very unique to it. That isn't 
the European colonial explorer. It's it's got similarities, but you know, and even like no, because like he's he's of the thing. He's of the thing. He's he inside of the thing. thing. Yes. He's a he's a, he's a pro, he is a native inside the system. The European the European colonial explorer is always the other. It's always yes, exotic. exactly. Okay. Yeah. These things with, with, with McCarthy, Nacogdoches is not an exotic place. This is a place that we've been a bunch of times. I don't know if you're familiar with the other. This is a novel that I think McCarthy probably was very familiar with. It's another one that's in this tradition. William Burroughs wrote a book called Cities of the Red Knight. Are you familiar with it? I think I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's just this dark, piratical, like American novel with this, 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 like, sort of like um, opioid dreamscape. Yucatan Peninsula, you know. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> that's also closure, a good pick. Hell, it's a good pick though. One step closer. That's my favorite Lincoln Park song. But mm. anyways, go ahead, Sandbash. I was looking for the Boulevard of Broken Dreams by Green Day. That is like the quintessential American <laughs> song. Yeah. yeah, it's too. It's too bad that like, um, what's his name, um, from from. Green Day, what's his name? Lead singer. Billy Joe Armstrong. Billy Joe Armstrong, yeah. Like it's too bad that he's like a, a libtard now. But like Is that's, anyone that's surprised a- by this natural evolution of these artists from like the two thousands? Is anyone <laughs> I mean, like you, you famously, you famously, you, you have famously tweeted along with several others. It is, it is a blessing that Kurt Cobain is not on Twitter today. Um, yeah, yeah, raging right. shit like, like I'm not surprised that Billy said- Joel. I'm not surprised Billy Joel Armstrong is raising shit. Lip. I'm not surprised that Rage Against the Machine I'm is having surprised like $500. That, I'm, surprised I'm not surprised that, by any of them. I'm surprised that Billy Joel Armstrong has not discovered he's a woman yet. I'm yeah, waiting for it. Kurt I'm Cobain would have been. Cobain. He would have been the yeah. first. He would have yeah. been a trailblazer right alongside the Wachowskis. And unlike the Wachowskis, he he probably there's no wonder why they consider him a transgender icon. He blew his brains out. Like, it's a, oh god! I don't. No, but fight me, here is, fight me. I can hear like, all of New Orleans is shaking as the algorithm wears up. I I don't I don't care in that respect. Like, but like the other thing about the road, I I feel like this is really important because I can. He gave an interview about the book to freaking Oprah Winfrey of all people. Um. And he and she asked him what inspired the book, and he gave a pretty straight up answer. And he says, "I would like to know what El Paso, Texas, would look like about a hundred years into the future." And he said, "Fires on the hill." Which, if you've ever been to El Paso, the Frank this is the only major metropolitan area in the state of Texas that is built around a mountain range. It's got the Franklin Mountains, the very tip ends where the Rockies kind of flame in there, uh, down into Mexico. And you kind of go up there and you sort of begin to see and alongside up in the way in New Mexico or into New Mexico. It's very pretty. And so he's intimately familiar with this sort of area. And he's, you know, and of course, it's dedicated to his son, John Francis McCarthy, who was a Zoomer born in 1989. It's strange to think about a man who's uh, as old as he is, had children later in his life. But that's also an American tradition. Look at John Tyler, uh, 10th president of the United States. But um, he had uh, sort of it was a mix of dedicating it to his son, but also conversations that he and his brother would have about the war, um, if the war that would ever come between like nuclear apocalypse. And so, uh, you know, you got the, the road is actually an exploration of what happens if say cyclical history happened and the war happens and man is over. Uh, and he had said that, um, when everything's gone, the only thing left to eat is each other. And I think that that's kind of an important thing to consider when we take a look at like, well, what, what do we do if, 
we did bring about an end to ourselves. I mean, you know, there are plenty of other books that have taken a look at this. I mean, um, John Michael Greer's talked about it in Retrotopia, like you can't force a technological regression. The only way that that really does come by is either in sort of like the collapse of complex systems, like Joseph Tainer sort of style deal, or, um, you know, that knowledge gets lost. Uh, and then you sort of get like the, the Toyn Bees and the others in the world. And again, funny enough, uh, Kissinger's written about Toyn B, uh, Spangler and Kant in one book. But the, the funny thing about the road to me is, is that like, yeah, it's haunting and absolutely dull. But I, I think about the fact that he lived under the, the gun for forever. Uh, World War II yeah. onwards, we've, we've lived under a nuclear gun. And then you guys talk about Trinity. If you ever go to the Trinity test site in Los Alamos, you ever visit that area. And you go outside of it and you got all of you're not too far from White Sands either. There's a little um, display sort of understanding of the testing of the Manhattan Project. And then there's a little theater and you're going to sit in that theater and you're going to play about a 35, 40 minute documentary, which is about the history of the Trinity testing of the Manhattan Project and then the escalation of nuclear war. Um, and nuclear testing and all the bombs that we've ever dropped, both on like the Bikini Atoll, the atmospheric tests. We've wanted to nuke everything. Hell, they wanted to nuke the moon in an ARPA. The Kuiper Belt. It was yeah. in a documentary room shot. Yeah, 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 Jones. yeah, yeah. But I mean, so you kind of under, like, in the, honest to God, to this day, and I, I was there like, um, just like a teenager, I think. But to this day, I still attest that that's the scariest film I've ever seen. Um, the day because, after? No, no, not the day after. This little 40-minute documentary about nuclear testing at the Los Salamos. Wait, tests. no. The, you know what's scarier than the day after? The BBC version. The BBC Threads? Came out. Threads? Threads? Yeah, yeah, that movie's terrifying. Oh, God. <laughs> that movie's the terrifying. The face getting melted? Yeah. But, yeah. like, that 40-minute that documentary is probably the scariest film I've ever seen. I Probably if I were to go back and watch it now as an adult, maybe not so much. But, like, as a, as a, as a younger teenager, it's scared the shit out of me. And so, like, I think the road is sort of that weird, like, well, what if we do it, right? You know, what if we yeah. destroy ourselves? And, like, what do we resort to? And I think we would resort to the very savages that Judge Holden, the kid, and the rest of those mercenaries have no problem yeah. killing. You know what the, the scene in the road that just makes it so it's just un, like, like, literally turns my stomach over? It's the scene where, you know, he's, they're hiding by the road and that, you know, the caravan comes by. Oh, yeah. And, and he gets caught, and you know the the the, the caravan cannibal is like laughing at him, since you, you know, because he knows you only got two bullets left. Yep. You know, whew, that's some Damn. that's some that's some Tennessee hillbilly dark right there. When he that's, goes into the basement of the mansion, there, that yeah. was like that terrified me. Yeah. <laughs> the description of what a flare gun will do to the human face is. Um... <laughs> a delightfully uh brutal brutal scene towards the end but yeah i mean also just uh what slow death by infection looks like uh when you don't have access to antibiotics or first aid oh my god but yeah i mean i i think that it actually fits rather well with his corpus of work not just with respects to ecology but also just like a man born in 19 19- 33 so he's like uh, he's a few years older than my grandmother who's still living and it's just like he's you you grow up from depression to world war ii to this never-ending threat of the world um and ways in which we can kill each other while at the same time right you have this vast industrialization also deindustrialization of america and we've fundamentally changed since he and was then a, digitalization a young man. of america yeah but i mean 
again, who he associates with, but also what he was alive to see, I think is makes him probably one of the most interesting writers of our time. And I don't, and I think you and I were talking about this in private, Sam Bash. I just don't know who succeeds him or what's left of that tradition. Well, I don't know that anybody can. Uh, well, you know, like there is a thing, there is a sense in which there will be some frog that does it. Maybe there is a sense in which the, the banner of Southern, there's a lot of banners. This is one of these problems with this, with, you know, like depending on these characters as they get aged, not replenishing the well over and over is that these characters that normally would only have to carry one banner end up having to carry a bunch of banners. Cormac McCarthy is carrying the banner, not only of Southern literature, he's also carrying the banner of American literature. He's also carrying the, carrying a number of the, carrying the banner of American masculinity. He's all of these things he's doing. You know, he's the whitest man in the world, you know, in, in in a very real sense in a lot of ways. So he goes down, you know, the, the flag banner, the flag bearer goes down. Who's there to pick it up? You know, we obviously can't you can't replace Cormac McCarthy with another Cormac McCarthy because we, we you know, but there's no protege. You have to spread some of this weight around, you know, spread some of this weight around. So, I mean, I think like you will, you start to see, you will see de like decoupling. Oh God, I hate to bring this sort of discourse up, but I mean, this fragment fragmentation is going to probably continue. And McCarthy is just, he's on board with this. This is very, you know, this, this new, this conceptual, new conceptual way of looking at history and time sort of accepts this. As you know, accepts of the process of fragmentation. It says, "Okay, this is the these are the new rules. The old rules are over. Okay, so the new rules is you're not going to be able to replace me. This culture that we exist in now. And you know, some people will say there well, is hyper modernity. That's you can't by definition. Yeah, they, people say there is a global global monoculture. Sure, but I mean, it's global monoculture. It's like in like." microwave foods like nobody's gonna take that seriously you know like as you know you know things that we would consider you know like serious cultural production they are they've been moved into a smaller space and a considerably more fragmented space i don't think i don't think it's gonna be several centuries again before i think we could see a unifying figure like yeah Robert mccarthy but we could produce individual we could produce southern writers who are you know the heir the heir to the southern literary tradition or the you know, Dan, Dan Baltic could, in a sense, you know, like be, you know, uh, one aspect of the, you know, of the, of the, you know, the, the, the next face of the American literary scene. I think he's Phillips, maybe. Yeah. I, um, I, I would give Marty a lot of credit if that, if there's going to be someone that might be able to do it, it, it would be him. Uh, I, I, I'm going to have him on pretty soon, but I, I really can't give enough praise to his. You motherfucker! Oh, I asked him to. <laughs> he DM'd me asking if I wanted a review copy. I wasn't going to say no to that opportunity. To review no, but I said like on. I'd bring him on content minded because I think more of the tweets though. I'll probably cover his his tweets because I remember like the old ones they used to post when you like went away for a bit. Oh, I, 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 I just love his book. That's, that's yeah. really, I, I, that's all my real interaction with Marty Phillips, actually. I don't know him from Adam, to be perfectly honest. And he DM'd me out of the blue. And he was asking, he's just like, I think we were mutuals at one point in time before. And I'm like, probably Marty's not. Marty's an I, old head. I, Marty's yeah. an old head. I am not by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> um, And so, but like I read his book and it's, it's a, a wonderful four vignettes about sort of the turn of the world after 9-11 in the 2000s. It covers everything from literally one of the jumpers on the day of that uh, attack um, 
to like this heart of darkness story with respects to the cartels and drugs and it's really good and also the housing crisis in 2008 no but like it's funny because i remember like um what was i gonna say like people were talking about can we admit that stephen king's the greatest living author it's like get a like this is like culture industry schlock this is like this is so dumb like literature like Film is approaching this. Stephen King at least had the decency to admit that Cormac McCarthy was one of the greatest writers ever. Really, eh? On I, it, I, I checked his timeline while before we went live because I wanted to know what that piece of shit had to say. <laughs> and I was pleasantly surprised that he gave Cormac McCarthy his due. And then his next tweet right after that was about Trump. And I was just like, this oh, is it. The, the coolest thing he ever wrote was a story about a sensitive young man who goes on a fun posting event and... Um, that's his best book. Uh, sorry, kid. I just want to point out that I'm disgusted with myself for understanding that sentence. I'm disgusted with myself for understanding. Oh, yeah. No, Picton is still alive, but is is Picton still alive? I don't know, actually. I think yeah, head. I think Picton is. I mean, Gene Wolfe is dead, right? So Picton's still alive. Uh, he's probably the greatest living writer right now. Oh, um, people try to say Don DeLillo. There's okay. Look for my money. I got like five writers that I think are potential, have potential that are in my head. Dan Baltic's one of them. Um, Ooh, oh, wow. You know, um, not bad for one book and a short story about a, a dominatrix who threatens to. We don't have a lot to go on. We, we, we really don't have a lot. There's, I mean, there's Is there not a Lovecraft? Lot. No. No, God. Maybe. I like his I like his short stories, but yeah, I really oh, like his Neo Neo Lovecraft. <laughs> I just gotta wait for the card. Yes, yeah, Neo Lovecraft, not the not HP Lovecraft. I don't like HP Lovecraft at all. That's just a weird foible of me. But I like Zero HP. He's pretty good sometimes. I think, uh, you know, uh, JL Mackey wrote Cowboy Church. I think these, you know, these there's there's the beginning of a literary scene like. But again, the problem I have with it is it's a little too self-conscious. It's a little too self-consciously a literary scene. Uh, there's a little, I, I God, I have such a hard time looking into the future and like seeing seeing where this is going. But I've been a dude. Old head. There's work there. I, I mean, I do, I do think there's something there. There are a couple of writers. I'm not going to name the other ones. I don't feel bad. I don't feel bad plugging Dan Baltic, but I'm not. I'm not going to name who I think the other ones. There, are. there was this. Uh, I forget why. Why I thought this, but you know, like that scene in Metropolis, how like um, the priest is up in the hill and he sees like the city, like it's a metaphor for like the um, you know, the Tower of Babel. I I just had this picture of like Moldbug descending down from the staircase and the di- and the the Devere Ball and like all those like like fake edge lords just like looking him on and like oh my god like that's it's like the vision that came in my head it was like i was pointed i, feel, I don't I think like that's moldbug is moldbug is not on my list i think moldbug is a good writer i don't think he's a great writer no but i was just saying like it's funny how moldbug like ushers in this need for like alternative like writing and art forms but yet like he himself becomes this like kitchified figure of like the guru of reaction but it's like in this like self-contained world that that's what makes it kitchen like it has to be like this like self-referential world that's like edgy but it's not too edgy 
It's like, you know, literary but edgy enough about, like, I can post. Hold on, let me edgy, interject. edgy enough to post on Substack to get two separate Ch projects funded. Yeah. Chat says, chat says, chat says, don't tell me five best writers and then just give me your online bros. Bro, I act like I, the scene is dark out there. I think we are the best. Sorry. What about France? And you read France? <laughs> I think, I think France? we are the best. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm mean, taking our mean, side. Okay, the question would be, like, do you mean American writers or just greatest living writer in general? Because I would be willing to expand my reach outside of the United States to have a discussion. Yeah. Because mm. I, I would argue real quickly that um, Michelle Thomas or Michelle Holabek is probably one of the best living writers of our time. Oh one yeah, best, yeah. He is one of the best, and he is still alive and still writing books. So I is I, he right? Is he working on a new book? I uh, he's working on something. I don't know what the hell he's doing right now. I think he's they, still trying to release. I think prawn. he's still suing to get that thing. Not yeah, Kirak. Is, he's suing Kirak for the prawn uh, thing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't is, think he wants that out there. I I I can't like watch. I can't do that. Like I am not very good at parasociality. When I keep interrupting, because I'm like reading the chat and I'll respond to it out loud. I'll be like, I'll like read like, oh, that was a good one. Uh, there's no way Zero HP Lovecraft's one of the greatest living writers. And yeah, I don't think he's one of the greatest. He's like good, but I don't. He's not. He's also not on my five. Um, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I'm sorry. Like if we're if we're expanding this to just like not the American writing scene, then yeah. Michelle Thomas is on that list. Sorry, probably, but that is that is a, he Russians. is probably one of the best. There's always there's consistently always good Russians. We just don't get them translated for us. Yeah. Well, someone mentioned uh, Thomas Ligotti, but I mean, I haven't read his fiction. I've only read uh, Conspiracy Against the Human Race, and I thought it was like, ugh, <laughs> you know, I don't want to get into it. But you know, I had a friend who was obsessed with that book, and he's like, Geo. I it's I can't I have, read it I have, anymore. I have only I have only read um his short stories of I have uh, I have a special plan for this world in the Nightmare Network. Uh, oh yeah. yeah, those are the only two that of his work that I, I I've read. Um, and I think they got graphic novel adaptations. I don't know. I don't know them all that well. And and I feel like a lot of the more interesting writers nowadays, like I mean, consider Theory fiction. Well, the Russian <laughs> right like. I, I think about value select and they have this little short song about like, it's really hard for a freelance artist to make money without drawing furry porn. So, I mean, like I'd imagine oh. it's the same for writers, but um, no, actually I think one of the more interesting writers is uh, the, what's his name? He is a Russian and we actually have translations of his work. Um, I'm trying, what is it? Uh, uh, Dmitry Glukovsky, the guy that wrote the Metro series. Like he just, he's, he's literally started by putting these chapters out on the internet and they got popular. Um, and it got picked up, of course, by uh, 4A and or whatever they are now, that video game group. I mean, the games are good, but like 2033 is actually a really interesting book. Um, and I haven't, I, I mean, I would recommend people read it. And I think that he's up there as an interesting writer. I don't know if he's one of the greats, but like there are still people putting out good fiction and it's worth our time. I think really one of the biggest problems with like political e-write punditry in general is, is that you're forced to be right, like reading all these like political philosophy books and like you're doing this to write your own book or I do it for a book club with patrons. I'm right now reading the death of ritual so I can have patron book club for July. Cause I'm going to be out on this conference this month. But like the only pieces of fiction I've read are by fiction that people want to, you know, want me to review 
and to put out there and I'll read review copies. I find them interesting. Yeah, same. Feel my friends. And so I'm like, I'm incredibly limited because if you ask me what's the my favorite book of all time, I'm going to tell you it's the Brothers Karamazov. I think it's the greatest book ever written in terms of fiction. Um, Wait, you know, I, you know who else said that? You. Cormac McCarthy. Really? Yeah. Did not know that one. Spangler also said that. But like that's my that's my favorite. I have I have my I have my four greatest novels ever written list, and mine and Cormac's were almost identical. It was kind of interesting. Yeah, this is like mine. Yeah. Is like Who are what are your top four? Brothers Karamazov, uh, Moby Dick, Sound and the Fury, and Middle March. I think the only one we had different was Middle March. Hmm. Man, what are your top four? Who me? Yeah, you. I haven't read enough. Um, I would say. Siddhartha is definitely up there. Um, I mean, I know House of Leaves is like a meme answer now, but I, I do quite enjoy House of Leaves. Um, it, I don't know. I read like a lot of theory fiction. Like, I mean, because like that's an extension of being a theory cell. Like, I think. Um, I could have sworn you said a lot of furry fiction. I don't <laughs> no, God, no, God, no. Uh... All, there is this like for for my book. I actually have to like. I, there's a bunch of essays that are quite illuminating, even like from the early 2000s about the furry thing. But like, um, I think like uh, Glass Bead Game is up there. Um, yeah, like Herman Hess is really great. Um, I would say The Blind Owl, although I have a different interpretation than Jason Riza uh, Giorgiani. Um, what else? I don't like. I, I again, I my old man reads a lot of fiction. I don't read a lot. I don't read as much fiction. Um, I, I'm embarrassed of that fact. Um, I read a lot of poetry. I don't read fiction, but like, um, let's see. I mean, yeah, Brother's Cameron's job is probably up there. Um, oh God, I'm I'm blanking now. I don't know. Um, I would definitely recommend the blind owl, especially for the neat aristocrat. I would recommend the blind the owl. The neat aristocrat. I love this. By Hadayat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the insult to like, basically the character from, uh, I was going to actually write an essay, but I don't have time now because I'm writing my book. But when I do have time, I probably will write an essay on uh, the blind owl for Apocalypse Confidential. Um, that basically Hedayat is portraying the incel too, in a way. Um, yeah. I mean, oh yeah, Brett Easton Ellis. Do you think Brett Easton Ellis is one of the greatest living writers? Um, he's still alive. He's still pumping out podcasts. Kind of, <laughs> he's still pumping out podcasts. To be real honest, he's hot garbage. Really? Like, yeah, like. But he's brolet. He's like fairly brolet. Yeah, and I, I know. I just like it. Just all fucking slaps me the wrong damn way. I mean, I'm like one of these like I like I'm like the gendered southern in in ways that cannot ever like. I look at that. It's kind of like how I watch mafia movies. I'm like, so that's how Yankees act. You know, like that's the way I, the way I, it's like a Nat Geo documentary for me when I read when I read something like that. Yeah, mm. um, Geo, who's your favorite Lusso scribblers? Um, basically, like forty to fifty year old beats that wrote like stories in the early two thousands that you could find on like text site erotica chapters. Uh, I don't know. There's like a lot of like weirdo stuff. Like, I mean, Richard Burton wrote a lot of like that type of erotica. Um, I actually do enjoy delicious tacos. I think like, um, his like, see, cause I like to me, delicious tacos is much, if you can like look past like the smut, like the actual sex, 
I think like if you get at the heart of like the reason that like for example the themes of like the like themes of like erotic like threat of reproduction comes up over and over again in delicious tacos is because I think like there's a longing for normalcy and there's a longing for fertility that has passed him by and I think people don't really get that when they read delicious they just read it for like this is a good story about like tawdry affairs you know like to make it you know to not like go too far for the youtube thing but like no i think like there's a lot of themes in delicious tacos that uh people wow. don't read into him and i was trying to get to that back in the fall of the rules days but i think like there were too many people on the stream and it was like got too immature and like people want to talk about feminism and i didn't get a chance to like jive with uh him about like the real heart of his literature um I have a weird list for my four. Oh so, yeah, who? Come on, throw it up. Uh, Brothers Karamazov. Um, I actually have a William Faulkner novel on here, but it's not his. It's usuals. It's Absalom, Absalom. Yeah, um, oh, Absalom, Absalom. Okay, yeah. Okay. I, I, you win. My, you win. That's my okay, you my win. favorite uh, Faulkner novel. Um, Moby Dick, and then. Um, the fourth one's always a tough fight, but I usually just slap Blood Meridian on there because it's probably my favorite Western. Um, oh, yeah. I, I grew up with all sorts of stuff. I, I talked about this on with Conscious Caracol earlier this week. It's our, like our bonus Digital Archipelago episode. It's in the playlist. You can go watch it. But like, um, I grew up with like a lot of Westerns, like not, not just movies, but like books and all those like, um, uh, what's Baumgartner paintings. And so it's just like, and it's very weird because it still has a very pronounced um, culture, uh, even in France, which still has like a, the most academic and political anti-American streak outside of like, you know, most ardent academic agent fans. And it's just like, um, there's a, there's a chain restaurant called the Buffalo Grill and it's just like peak kitsch American Western stuff. And I'm including <laughs> with the Baumgartner paintings, you know, horns hung up. It's like, it's like a West, it's like a, it's like take American Western or like Remington paintings. Yeah. Yeah. But take all of that. Like you would see in a cracker barrel and then throw it outside of Paris, France in the midst of their highway system. And you can go stop and get a steak burger. It's very strange, but it's yeah. this neat cultural artifact. But yeah, those are my four Absalom, Absalom, um, brothers, Karamazov. Um, and the other two that I just listed there with Cormac McCarthy being uh, number four, although number five sometimes varies. Cause I, 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 I distinctly like a lot of the um, Civil War stories at the time as well. But those are more like short novellas and things like that. But, oh, yeah. you know, I, I find that war so fascinating because it's just like when I like when go to, I'd go to family reunions as a kid and just be like, oh, man, you know, like because I have family that's done like this, all this work, like hundreds and hundreds of hours worth of work for genealogy. And it's a very, I think, interesting American thing. Cause like, depending on like what kind of class you grew up in, like, you know, white lower middle-class land workers, like you kind of want to know where you descend from. Like, if you know that like somewhere down the line, you might descend from something nice, like, you know, you can claim that just some, some tidbit of honor or a story that you can pass along to sort of sell yourself if you moved out West. But like, um, you know, some of us were did pretty well for ourselves. Others joined the army and got out of there. Like my dad's side is, um, you know, Irish immigrants that came over in the 1840s and have fought every war that the USG's been in since the Mexican-American War. My mother's side's been here since the very beginning. It's just, 
it's all interesting stuff, but uh, getting way too off track on Cormac McCarthy and wax and poetic. Apparently, the Mormons have the biggest genealogy center in Utah for people. In yeah. Well, you kind of have to. With those I, think, I think the last the, the last the last thing Cormac McCarthy would want us to talk about is Cormac McCarthy, and it, 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 it'll it'll lot of strange. Man who man who never gave an interview hates talking yeah. about himself. Who would have guessed? Huh. Well, I forgot to mention Tool. Ignatius. Um, Confederacy Sedunce is one of my favorite works. Have, have you ever heard me do my spiel about Confederacy of Dunces? No, I haven't. Have you ever heard it, Prude? Uh, no. Um, like I, I haven't. Keep in mind, Adonius is literally me. So. Yeah, okay. It, it, I mean, there is some hard Ignatius tendencies in me. And look where I am, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, okay, I'm at this very moment recording a lengthy screed against the evils of the century. And the um, Corm the Confederacy of Dunces to me reads, it's a terrifying, it's like heart of darkness is for some people to me. It's like, I mean, it's funny. There, there, it's like yeah. certainly darkly funny. But to me, uh, whenever I read it, this is like the, this is the chronicle of a man who is very similar to me in you know, original circumstances and philosophical temperament and profession and life circumstances and age. And he's clearly careening down the rails into suicide. So this is a very dark trip into the, the psyche of my own, like sort of civic identity as a, as a New Orleanian, you know? Um, so there's an extra added edge on Confederacy of Dunces. I think specifically for people in New Orleans, like this wouldn't even go as far as Baton Rouge. Like, you know, like, like, it's like for us, like everyone down here, we all know what Ignatius and I'm the Ignatius that a lot of people know, <laughs> you know, what is bred that in, in that particular era, like around, like around NOLA, like what, what happened? Like, did, like, why, why does it produce like this phenotype? Uh, you know, well, I, I really, I don't quite know. I <laughs> don't know. Um, I mean, it's decidedly not American city and it's very, it's a very unserious city. And, um, it's, it's a very criminal city. So it, it produces a very strange combination, you know, you know, like of joie de vivre, uh, murderous violence, um, Catholic revolt against the future and mm, yeah, you know, yeah, and sort of tropical mugginess. Um, I've mm. never, a friend of mine actually, you know, mutual friend of ours said, I one once told me, said I should write about New Orleans, and I've tried over and over and over again, and I can't, she can't make, I can't now make I it. Now I can understand, now I can understand the series Banshee a bit more as to like yeah. why, yeah, like that's the theme that of the present, yeah. Is that the recent one about the the law family? Like some law no no semi recent no no the Banshee's about um this guy like pretends to be the town sheriff the new one and it's uh it's like one of the most like physically graphically violent series that they've come out with in recent years but it's got like a lot of that uh, element of like it also has like an element of tech as well because like one guy like he's friends with this like gay tech bro that helps him out and um it's like i i think like it does have those elements of that particularly like louisiana phenotype but um but it's just caked in like sex and violence everywhere so um anyways i think we should move over to the supers i mean i i know um 
Kualango wanted to talk about Suti, if you've read Suti or Sutri. Um, by, um, I think that's actually that's the one I haven't read, mm. but I'm sure somebody somebody may have. Yeah, but uh, I never knew that that he also uh, did the whole um, like Stephen King, uh, a lot of like themes about like weirdo elements of sexuality. But um, anyways, um, so should we move on to the Supers boys? I mean, it's getting late. Eh? actually yeah. quite hungry um so anyways I, I have a i have a date tonight at some point so we, we, we got it we've got to finish up at some point yeah, all right good. Gonna get it tonight yeah. oh, <laughs> so anyways josh has sent me another super um on my on my uh paypal so if you want to donate directly to paypal i have the link down um he said only um was getting sneeded part of your plan yes it was as every week that I have a, a live stream. So um, there you go. I mean, let's do the shilling. So next week I will come out with another content minded. I haven't decided if it's going to be Alexander Adams or it's going to be uh Gorin, a GSP from the war report. Um, and also like, again, I'm working my book. So I have been lagging on the reviews and um, I have like a few important meetings this week. So We'll see what happens. And also, oh, a new update, content update, is that on Tuesday, around 7 p.m. British time, but around, I believe, 2 um, EST, I'm hosting, first in a long time, I'm hosting a, a Twitter space, a Twitter space with Pharaoh and uh, Fen de Villiers. We're going to talk about the new gallery, the exhibition that a bunch of my friends uh long time coming uh matthew the stout has organized along with alexander adams and a bunch of other people from this institute in britain and uh we're going to talk about that and uh well yeah no more hockey i mean the season's done and by the way the the finals was a travesty in my opinion although i was happy that the golden knights basically destroyed the florida panthers that that uh they they, they advanced by let's say unsavory means but there's I think that there's a hockey team called the Florida Panthers. Yeah, yeah, that's they made it to the finals. The Florida Panthers. Dear yeah. God. Yeah, I mean, there's two teams in Florida. There's the Panthers and the Tampa that's Bay Lightning. That's a Girardian nightmare. <laughs> why does Florida have hockey teams? Because of the Snowbirds. That's why. <laughs> you know? No, no. They have two uh, hockey, hockey teams. teams where ice is natural. It's because yeah, I know. Of Pedro is I know. the reason this the reason this permutate this perversion provision provision of nature has occurred is because of Pedro Gonzalez and the Ron DeSantis campaign, who yeah. are against both who are against both God and civilization. You know. Yeah, Gary um, Batman is against both God and civilization. Yeah, exactly because of Gary Batman. Yeah, no, but Vegas won. Actually, Vegas. I gotta say though, even though it's kind of suspicious that they've only been existing for like what since 2018. And uh, they've won a cup in like less than six years. Uh, but no, the reason they have, a, apparently Vegas is actually pretty popular. The Golden Knights actually do have a fan base in Florida, in, uh, sorry, in uh, Vegas, because they managed to promote themselves quite well. And uh, Vegas has managed to become a hockey town for some reason. That's pretty crazy. But anyways, enough about my screen. Hopefully the Maple Leafs, they have to get rid of the big four, at least one of them. And they have to, I, I think they should get rid of their coach. Uh, but that's just my opinion. I think Sheldon Keith has been a total failure. Um, you know, when I was a kid, the Maple Leafs, they they had an amazing team. They had a violent team. 
Uh, they had guys like Ty Domi and Darcy Tucker and, huh. and Wade Belock and Shane Corson just destroying people on the ice every night. And uh, a little Geo, little Geo going to my going to my tenant's place to watch hockey, my Portuguese tenant, um, and just like yelling at the screen for Ty Domi to destroy somebody. <laughs> you know, you imagine like imagine like eight, nine, ten year old me just screaming at the television when Ty Domi just drops the gloves. But anyways. That is a vision I will not assange you with anymore. Um, no, listen, yeah, the Habs are not going to win next year, okay? People have thought the Habs are cooking. The, the Ottawa Senators, they think that they got a good team. They're gonna, probably going to get good picks in the draft, but I don't believe it. Listen, Donald Trump Gaming, I, I have to say this as a Maple Leaf fan, okay? This is why I, hate, <laughs> why I have to hate the Senators. But anyways, first for $1.99, would you kiss Kissinger, fellas? Would you kiss... I mean, well, you mean the kiss of death? Is that what you're talking about, <laughs> Comfy Lad? Um, I gotta say, there's been a lot of base Kissinger takes lately. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Why, why people are uh, memeing base Kissinger? I don't know. No, it didn't make any sense to me. Kissinger is like the worst person ever. Like, it's just, oh, like you'd be hard, you'd be hard pressed to find a person that I dislike more than Henry Kissinger, who's still alive. Like, I mean, this is a guy who's responsible for like all kinds of he's responsible for nearly all of the things in american foreign policy that guys on our side dislike so i mean i really don't understand it it's like strange incongruence it's like oh he's based i'm like he's really not he's he's like the dark lord tony blair yeah so dark that you you study him him. to understand how on earth you got to here but i mean again you have to understand like his senior this is a college senior thesis his whole senior thesis is about metternich this is where he got his start and so what is he trying to do with this like weird, like Machiavellian way in which how can I create a concert system with a primary world order being centered around the United States? Spoiler alert, it doesn't really work that way because the rest of the world is not like a bunch of like 19th century Europeans after the defeat of Napoleon. But like, yeah, lo and behold, right, you know, um, but read his work because it's actually well worth your time to kind of understand how he thinks and world order is interesting uh his metternich stuff is actually probably one of my favorite things of his to read because he's like actually really good historiographer believe it or not which is like a very strange thing to consider but i don't know if i'd give him a kiss look i'm not saying don't read him i'm just saying like you don't you don't he is so this is a zoomer thing that I, I like you all will like and i will go right at the zoomers here you all will do this thing where worship uh, power yeah, well, you no, not even worship power. You you all have like no pedagogy, like so, like like you like read a new book and download the personality. So like, it's, like not every it's literally not every, not every book that's published is a good <laughs> book, you know. Yeah, um, true. Not everybody that writes a book is based. Um, there, you, you know, you can read a book and say, ah, oh, that wasn't very good. Yeah, exactly. You could read Karl Marx and be like, no, maybe not. But uh, no, if, I mean, only, I if, only we, if only we stopped every Zoomer tanky who read Marx and downloaded that personality, we'd save ourselves a lot of grief. Apparently, our good friend Amy Therese is in a war with Oz now. So, but she gets whatever, into a war whatever, with whatever, whatever, whatever shuts him up. I'm for it. <laughs> she called. He called her, and I quote, uh, "A drug addicted crack uh, word." I can't say on YouTube. But anyways, um. If there's one thing of Kissinger that you're going to read, I will just suggest humbly, because I think it's still worth considering in uh, the wake of the alliance trap that we're currently uh, would be 1965, the Triple Partnership, um, 
a reassessment of the Atlantic Alliance or something like that, uh, where he sort of ta- takes a look at whether or not this Atlantic NATO project is worth our time. Well, that is actually, well, I wanted to read his, what he said about Spangler, but, um, you got like a hundred pages to read. I mean, it, yeah. wouldn't, it wouldn't be a stream thing. It might be like a, a solo variety nigga show hour for you, but no, it yeah. could be. Yeah. Cause I was thinking of doing one on a uh, fish tank, but I might write about fish tank, but, um, so Owen Zaleski sent me a PayPal for, uh, I think six dollars a minute. Well, the fee it's like five seventy nine. So thank you, Owen Zaleski, your good friend or good patron. Um, I think you're in the Patreon um, Discord. I have to invite Sambatch to the Patreon Discord. But anyways, for this is a good one for twenty dollars. Jacob, our good friend Goober. That's it for twenty dollars. I was like, oh, I'm worth tw- I'm worth twenty dollars for you all today because I'm sure he's talking about me. Oh, he I, sure maybe is. he is. I think he's one of your a logs. Um, so thank you, Jacob. Wait, hold on. I was just point is this a log thing. I, this this has been used. This phrase has been used around me as though I don't <laughs> as though I don't know what it means. I know what it means. No, I know you know, know what it means. <laughs> the the, the damn a logs. Um, to quote Ethan Ralph. Um. So dyslexic generator for two. I love that name, by the way. Dyslexic generator That's for so two dollars. It's so amazing. Yeah, Geo, are you one of us? Yes, I am one of you. I don't know what it. I mean, do you mean Zoomer American? I think it was. We were talking about America at that time. So no, I am it's not Australian. American. Two dollars. Oh, okay. I mean, I like Australia. I I like a lot of Australian culture. I've I've watched a staggering amount of Australian uh, daytime television shows. Um, so, I mean, a lot of Canadians have been to Australia. A lot of Canadians, like, there's an affinity. But if you had to, like, take two countries that are so similar in so many ways, it would be Canada and Australia. Demographically, culturally, you name it. Um, so, okay, this is 220, 220 by Whiskey Jack. What about Lovecraft and Blood Meridian? Does Lovecraft come up in Blood Meridian? I didn't know that. Interesting. Like a Lovecraftian influence? Is there a Lovecraftian influence in Blood Meridian? I don't think so. I, I don't see it. But I like I, I blew I blew my wad whenever I said I don't like HP Lovecraft. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think I don't see. I no, I don't see any of that in there. I don't see because with Cormac McCarthy, there's not as much fiction go, goes into Cormac. He didn't read a lot of fiction. He was remarkably not very well read, and this is what something people said about him. So he's not going to know. I mean, he'd be aware of some of these guys, but he didn't really like them. Like you know, he liked mathematicians and that sort of thing, and that was something that was true about him his entire life. So like like there's you know uh, there's not con- as I don't much. consider I can't consider that what goes on in, in in Blood Meridian to be cosmic, right? Like horror. I I, I, yeah. I wouldn't see that. I mean, even if it was right, like it is so intrinsically infused into like Christianity that I, yeah. I it would be far at least one or two cousins, family members, you know, removed from from Lovecraftian. Yeah. But yeah. So Nerve AMV Maker for $10. The Crossing is uh is uh, possibly the best tragedy ever written by an American. The very end of the book is the single most haunting thing I've ever read, spiritual tragedy that's most devastating. What is The Crossing? What is The Crossing? It's his 1994 book. 
Is it is it good? I, I, this is one I have not read. I haven't read the yeah. Um, I know it's considered uh, the follow up to all the pretty horses, but I, I've only read all the pretty horses. Mm. Have you read it, Sam Batch? Oh no, I haven't actually. Like again, like, with McCarthy, I'm like I'm not the biggest expert. I'm very similar to Cormac McCarthy, but I've not. I am not an expert. I am not actually personally. Maybe I should read The Crossing well. next. I mean, yeah, I no, wouldn't I always. Mean, uh, that's one of the ones I think is more interesting looking, but he has some he's some stuff that just doesn't really look like it interests me that much. I like and I was sort of poisoned because I tried to read the Orchard Keeper and I was like, this isn't very good. And apparently I probably wouldn't be fair, and that kind of turned me off some of the other I liked earlier, it. I've yeah, only read or, passages of it, but it, I liked it. Yeah, I can't I came to bury Cormac McCarthy, not to unilaterally praise him. <laughs> some of the some of the stuff I don't really like that much. You know, uh, care, no I've never read that one. So no characters from all the pretty horses uh, reappear, but its predecessor, Crossing, is a coming-of-age novel set in the border between southern United States and Mexico. It takes place before and during the Second World War. Focuses on the life of protagonist Billy Parham, teenage cowboys. Yeah, well, it looks pretty interesting. Um, is there any romance in Cormac McCarthy, or not a lot? There's not. It seems like women are suspiciously uh, absent. None. Okay, almost none. He's got like essentially one female character that he spent 15 years writing. And uh, it's this woman in Stella Maris. And like, even she's like, a, she's really like an autistic woman. She's like a dude trapped ah! in her body. Uh, this is the only way you can really describe it. You know, she, she, she reminds me. I know a lot of women like this. I yeah, mean, there's like a mass autistic there's romance she, in all the pretty horses. She reminds me of an e-girl is what she reminds me of in a lot of ways. <laughs> but, um, and she's actually the one that speaks the passage. She's the character that speaks the passage about Spangler. But then when she refers to her own sexuality, she uses the phrase girl juice. And I'm like, only a dude would use that word, man. Yeah, yeah only a dude. Exactly. No woman would ever contemplate saying that. Unless they're like, unless they've been totally destroyed by prawn or something like that. But anyways. Um, or they're an e-girl. Or they're an e-girl. Exactly. Maybe, maybe bronze. No, 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 no. I shouldn't say. I shouldn't, we shouldn't rag on her because apparently Chloe's actually a pretty nice person, but it's just, I don't know. Um, for those of you, I was going to refer to Bronze Age Shoddy, but I don't want, I don't want to cast shade on Bronze Age Shoddy. Uh, I heard she's pretty nice, but you know, anyways. Five. Hey, say that again. Say that word Shoddy again. Say it. Shoddy? Say it for me. Say it for me. Shoddy? Yeah. 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 yeah boy. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, I like the Texan Southerner, like the Alex Jones Southern accent. That's my favorite one. That's but also a, like young, one young Alex Jones. Yeah. Years. But Louisiana has some great accents, though, especially the voted, Canadian one. Yeah. My my actual, my specific dialect, which whenever I, whenever I like, if I start drinking or something, it starts sounding like this a little bit more, was uh, voted the easiest to listen to in the entire oeuvre. oeuvre I can't pronounce French words oeuvre. at all. Uh, yeah. Oeuvre. Uh, of uh, of English language dialects, but some people out there and they're wrong. I'm sorry, you're wrong. East Texas is fine, but mine is the best. I've got I've got the one. I've got the one. I like I like the idea that you've had a few drinks on the stream and you're sitting in your car. I hadn't had any, to sober I, up. I'm totally sober right now, actually. Oh, you know, that's, that's just so how he talks. <laughs> but anyways, Nerva Maker for five dollars. Leftists have come out saying his work was dominant critique of Western masculinity. It's pretty funny. No, I mean, Cormac McCarthy, how can you read The Road and not conclude that that's a celebration of a particular sacrificial form of masculinity? 
I mean, that's incredible. I mean, that's a Talia Lobin take right there, if I've ever seen one. But um, The book is dedicated to his son, but okay, yeah. lefties. Do you think his son could be a great writer or no? He and his son were working together on this like film adaptation shit for Blood Meridian. I don't know what his I don't know what his son is going to do. I mean, he's literally younger than all of us, and that's a weird thing to imagine that this man who died at what the age of what eighty nine, um, yeah, had a kid in nineteen ninety nine. Holy crap! That's but, like yeah, that's uh, Hugh Hefner level. Yeah, he pulled, but I mean. Not often, but he pulled. But like, you know, who knows what John Francis uh, McCarthy will be like? What? What? He's still a young man. He could be anything. But I mean, yeah. I think he's he's a sensitive young man. I doubt that. But I mean, he's he's got the authority of his yeah. father's works. I mean, he he could be something. He has he has potential. He could be like Dominic Mysterio to Rey Mysterio. No, I shouldn't. Apparently, Dominic Mysterio is like the number one heel in uh, in the WWE right now. But I, I find that hard to believe because I hate that nerd. I hate that. Nep- the only, the only, okay, here's the thing. You want to know about pro wrestling? The only cases of nepotism in pro wrestling that were really good. I mean, there's a few of them. The Von Erics, the Poffo family, by which I mean Randy Savage. Um, of course, the Hart family. And that's pretty much, I mean, there's Japanese examples. There's a lot of Mexican, only like Mexicans and certain forms of Canadians and certain forms of Texaners can really make nepotism in professional wrestling work. I mean, Mexico, they have their tradition of it. Um, some some masks that luchadors wear have like literally been worn by their family for like 50, 60, 70 years. Maybe some of them 100 years, actually. But anyways, um, but Americans, no. I mean, that's nepotism in pro wrestling, unfortunately, has uh, gone by the wayside. But anyways, that's a long digression that I probably should save uh, if I ever go on Academic Agent Show again. But uh, for... Zong Y, Han Y, I for five dollars. I don't mean to blow up his hunting ground, but I'm pretty sh- confident. I saw Geo trying to pick women outside of Lame Brant. No, listen, implying I ever leave my I basement. I saw that one when it went up live. That is it, so I, had, I, had, funny. I had to mute and laugh. That 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 shit is that's that's a great trying story. to pick up women outside a plus sized woman's clothing <laughs> store. Chris. <laughs> oh. Geo is the anti-zero HP Lovecraft. Yeah, she she not only could she not lose weight, she could gain a few pounds. Um, that's a good one, actually. That's a pretty great one. I gotta admit that that's a good one. That's a my I I shouldn't I shouldn't say this on air, but a friend of mine she actually texted me with that screen cap. I'm like she's like that's the funniest super chat. <laughs> I go, oh man, it wasn't default friend. It was another woman. So um um anyways. Our good friend Lou Templar for $5. Um, have any of you read uh, Alice Babylon or watched the 1984 Threads? We talked about Threads. We talked, we talked about Threads. Yeah. But no, and I, I have read, I, yeah, I've read Alas Babylon. Uh, it was a long time ago. It was in ninth grade was when I read it. But I have read it. Alas Babylon. Oh, oh, it's the one where it's a, the nuclear apocalypse happens and people in the Southern Hemisphere, like in Australia or some shit like that, they have to slowly watch the fallout headed towards them man that's that's kind of like the star by um oh who was that the fedora tipping fiction i mean i know that's not specific saying fedora tipping fiction writer um clark clark you know he wrote the star about oh, the yeah, star clark. of Bethlehem destroying fedora tipping clark he goes into a <laughs> he, he goes into a phone booth and he comes out and he's superman <laughs> no 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 um 
you know, he wrote that story about the star of Bethlehem destroying a planet civilization. And it's like, it's supposed to be this like thought provoking, like Reddit thought probe of like the star of Bethlehem destroyed a civilization, but it gave us the birth of Christ, blah, blah, blah. So it's like, um, who am I? I think it was three D five me, bro. Yeah. three yeah. five me. I had to read that first year philosophy, that, that short story. Um, so what are your thoughts? So this is for $5 by scribe eight, seven, six, two, our good friend and patron. What are your thoughts on No Country for Old? We skipped No Country for Old Men. I feel like the film's adaptation is what brought McCarthy to most people in a generation. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Anton I, I did not watch that movie until 2021. Really? Um, yeah. The thing about old, old Country for Old Men, this is the only thing I'll say about it, is that the film is excellent. It is, it's an excellent film, but it's it, there. it skips a scene that changes the meaning of it entirely. Okay, and so you have to read the book to get like this actual meaning, but the First of all, the character Ed Tom is the villain of No Country for Old Men, a uh, controversial take that I will not expound Whoa. upon. And then uh, second second of all, however, the, there's a scene, the scene that proves that he's the villain is the one that gets removed from the movie, and it's when he's, he goes to talk to the old uncle, you know, you can't stop what's coming. But um, he goes to talk to this character, and he, we, we get this story about how, because, you know, Ed Tom's story is he's a decorated World War II veteran, comes back to his hometown, comes sheriff, you know? And um, we find out that his whole World War II story is stolen valor, that he was like a coward, everyone in his unit was killed, and he hid under a rock and then crept back to friendly lines, and he was decorated for it. And that's the whole base. So there's no, there is like like this this one, this character that's supposed to be the moral center of this novel, it collapses at the end. Just <laughs> the, moral, the center falls out, and there's nothing. Emptiness, you know, man is just a brutish animal. Um, holy crap that's you know that's and so that's that's why that's why he's the that's why he's the the villain because he's the only he the reason he's the villain is because he's the villain he's the only character in no country for old men that has the arrogance to think himself a hero that's the reason yeah. why he's the villain um but there's yeah, yeah, yeah that's old country for no country for old men's actually my favorite one. Oh wow yeah. hmm. that is a good interpretation of it that's incredible um so for five dollars, Parker the person, the Trinity test site is at White Sands, Los Alamos is a couple hundred miles north. There we go. Oh, yeah. There yeah. you go. My that's, that's America in general, right there. Texas has really been like people think New York, um, Pennsylvania, Maine, uh, DC. Like there's, I think like Texas has like it's sort of like a forgot. Like not White forgotten, Sands like, is in New Mexico, by the way. Like, yeah. It's not oh, yeah, this is New Mexico. This is New Mexico. No, but a lot J. of like We're fundamental. J. Otto Pole country here. J. Otto Pole and uh, who's that? Oh, that's old John David Ebert uh, and Art Bell. And Art, Art Bell. Bell. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of UFO activity in uh, New oh, Mexico. Well, I wonder why. Yeah, yeah, I wonder why. Okay, so the <laughs> UFOs are right next to the nukes. This works if you're yeah. a conspiracy theorist and if you're not one, you know. Exactly. If you're like some kind of uh, like Jordan Maxwell, Michael Tsarian, Richard Lane type of conspiracy theorist, then it does work out quite well. If you're like Art Bell broadcasting in the mid-90s. Um Wait, a redditor? I am not a redditor. I've never, uh, I've never, I've never used Reddit. Apparently, there's a Reddit exodus right now. But I, yeah. I see. This is why I, I think Reddit should. Did stay you notice how Twitter is kind of preparing for that with their little communities thing? Yeah. Like, if oh, you're a God. part of a certain like community, you can be a part of this Twitter community thing. And 
more more hyper individualization through like consumer identity but anyways well, yeah that's what i mean i think reddit should stay up as a containment zone for all of the freaks but that's my opinion well from what i saw like basically reddit is like they're changing their api or whatever and oh, like boy. some people are getting upset about this and like they're so getting rid of karma what are they doing they're, they're getting rid of um moderators that have been there for forever so all these yeah that have got like their only so existence the moderator the yeah, moderator it, side has come. It, 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 it's uh, Will, Will it's, Janney. It'd be Janet. It'd be it's Janney's TJD. out on the street. It, it's, it's TJD <laughs> over there, and they were replacing all these power-hungry Jannies with other moderators, and so like so to open up these communities, so like private niche like fetish communities are like, what do we do now? And it's just like, well, nothing. Apparently, all they're your all going private. Shit they're all going private. They're all going back to Twitter. Um, because, yeah, it's a disaster. You're going to so. see a lot more sickos on Twitter. You're, You're going to have a lot to more your, call on the timeline. A lot more call. You're going to have to keep your account locked. Uh, don't say anything controversial. And um, I don't know. I, I've seen people. St- our good friend JJ got banned again. I don't know what he did. Like, when he comes back, we'll have to explain. JJ, the. Uh, I, yeah, JJ, the jackoff plane, is, will come back as some other onanistic vehicle That's combo. That's the greatest account name ever. I know, eh? It's the best one. His last account was called the little engine that touched himself. <laughs> and finally, if there's no more, because I have to actually go to bed early today. Um, Paul W. Hall for one ninety nine. Who sneeds the sneed man? Chuck. Chuck. Chuck, Chuck sneeds the sneed man. Exactly. See the child. Chuck see the sneed man. The sneed man cometh. Um, why did I just say that? The sneed man. I'm trying to keep up <laughs> no. with the chat here. But anyways, uh, final. What, what what do you guys have going for you guys? Uh, like I said, next week I have uh, a, a Twitter space and I have other things. Uh, what do you guys have coming up? Uh, well, I'll be streaming on Monday with Orrin McIntyre and I've got a lengthy foreign policy stream. So it'll be like a streamathon for because the payouts on, on the 21st. So I'm going to be doing this little streamathon to have some extra cash on hand and pocket for the trip uh, next weekend, which is the U S Sildings event conference tickets, I think are still on sale up until I think this coming Wednesday is when they finally stop going. So um, yeah, I'll be there or McIntyre, a couple of bunch of others. So two streams, uh, one on orange channel Monday, then a lengthy one on mine starting bright and early. And then I'll be recording a few things. So there'll be uh, some video stuff available um, while I'm out this weekend for those who can't attend. And uh, Sam, I'm going to probably decide next Wednesday at an hour before ticket sales close whether or not I'm going to head out to that event. But it's like super iffy for me because I've got – and the content's going to be pretty super iffy for the next couple weeks because I'm going to be traveling quite a bit. I'm going to going to the high desert uh, out in Taos. Uh, then I'm going to San Francisco, and then I'm going up to Duluth, Minnesota. It's like every normal people, they go to like New York. I'm going I'm going to New York, going to Austin, going to – Going to join to Chicago, and I'm like, I'm going to Duluth, uh, Taos, <laughs> and uh, San Francisco. Yeah, <laughs> I want to go to Chicago one day. I mean, I have a lot of friends in Chicago. So. I Chicago gang is my favorite cluster of like of like it's my favorite like, right wing community cluster. Yeah, yeah. but uh, and also I think Default's going to be in uh, New York this summer, so she's. She asked me to come down, so I'm like, maybe I'll go to. I always wanted to go to New York City, but um. You ever been? I've never been. No. You should go. I should. Yeah. I mean, um, is Kevin Michael Gray streaming again? Someone's in the chat. See you in the next KMG stream, bud. Um, 
I Man, I, I love not knowing who these people are. You know who Kevin Michael Grace is? Nope. And I'm the oldest not, of old no. Canadian heads. Um, hopefully I'll have him on Content Minded one day because I'd love to talk to Kevin Michael Grace. But um, so anyways, yeah, that's our final shilling. Uh, next week we'll probably come out with a Content Minded. Uh, I'm just in the middle of writing a major chapter for my book. We have to make things more coherent, which is impossible for me. So thank you all for our late edition of Digital Archipelago. I don't know if we're going to have one next week or the week after because of the Skeldings, Skeldings event. Um, I'm leaving so, Friday morning, so we can have one on Thursday. All right, we'll see. Maybe we'll do Nathan Barley finally. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> if, yeah, not that you have time. Or maybe, you know what? We'll do Nathan Barley when you come back, when you have time to actually watch the series. It's only six episodes, but... um. Uh, keep saying he will stream again. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope yeah. he does, but Kevin Michael Grace is such a I'm going to go watch his old content now. Last one yeah. from 10 months ago. Can America no longer count? And yeah. this old Canadian is... Oh, he sounds like he's just my cup of tea. Uh, he is. He I is, look man. forward to it. Uh, okay, he was so, part of the original Luke Ford gang, but then he oh boy. had a falling out with Luke Ford. So anyways, um, enough about E-Drama. Uh, thank you all. God bless. Goodbye. Thank you, Christopher Sambach. Uh, me and you yeah, have to record. Yeah. Crude can't argue all to I, himself. So I gotta go chase my one itis. Yeah, I know, I'm man. I hope it, I hope it works out, man. Yeah, I know. it's been 15 years. I'm, I'm find some way to fuck it up. I, I I know what you mean, man. I have had the same one itis since we were little kids. So, yeah. anyways, thank you all to all the Geo cells, Patreon, uh. Prude subscribe star. Uh, all of our links, all of our, you know, shill accounts are on the bottom. Go to my Telegram, please. Subscribe to my Telegram because I always, like, have uh, my little rants there. So uh, thank you all. God bless. Goodbye too. Sweet. And, and go, yeah, and uh, go to that, go to that uh, Twitter space on Tuesday.